Welcome back to Scream Addicts Hammer Pub. I'm Jinx, your co-host. I'm here with co-host Paul Farrell. Paul, you doing all right this week? How's it going? I'm good. I'm good. A little, little tired. Uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of going on in our world. Uh, but I'm, I'm excited to talk, uh, talk Hammer. One of my favorite Hammer movies. Now, uh, Paul, guess what? What? We have a guest. Do we? Wait, don't we? <laughs> uh. Were, were was, you not informing that... me just before the show began that we might have a special appearance later on in the show? Could you, oh, uh, could, could well, you brace listeners for that? Uh, that is true. We may have a surprise guest uh, coming in. He's he's uh, new to Hammer. Uh, he've only, he's only seen maybe like two Hammer films. Um, he's also sort of just new in general. He's about a year and a half old. He is my foster dog. Uh, his name is Pirate. Uh, and he is, uh, totally deaf, uh, almost mostly, mostly blind, not all the way blind. He can see. Um, and so he's a puppy. He's very excitable. He gets scared very easily because he can't, uh, hear. And he's very, very sensitive to like vibrations and things. So if you're just like walking around the house, or moving at all, he kind of knows you're moving. It's really interesting. Um, so even though he can't hear, it's like he'll still kind of respond to you if you're nearby. It's very odd. Um, but as I said, he's very excitable. He is sleeping in his kennel uh, two rooms away. And if he wakes up, he will uh, he will let us know. And he'll be very vocal on the podcast. <laughs> so he has issues hearing and issues seeing. It's a shame he wasn't around for The Mummy Shroud. He might have... I appreciated know, that movie a I bit know. more than we did. It would have been perfect for him. <laughs> so no, he had to pick one of the great ones to uh, to be around. For, it's a shame so. he did sit through most of the movie the other night. So, I mean, he did see it, so he could comment. Well, he saw what he could see of it. He, he I am, I would like to think that he could sense its greatness. Mm-hmm. I think that's fair. I think he probably could. All right, so we don't have an honest to goodness guest this week but we do have a pretty fantastic film to chat about with Quatermass in the pit which we'll get to after our recent watches paul what have you seen yeah. this past week um i actually saw a good amount of things this week uh so many in fact that for the first time in a while on this cast it's gonna be tough to narrow it down uh, i think i'm gonna stick to i saw a lot of new stuff um I, I don't know. It hit me that I hadn't been watching, like, I've been watching a lot of really, really older films. Um, I did watch a few more Abbott and Costello films this week, um, but I went ahead and rented, like, three or four movies, which is a little out of my, something I haven't done in a while. Um, a couple I'll just plug very, very quickly, uh, because one's not horror, but it's, like, adjacent enough, and it was really good. So I checked out Nobody uh, on my theater at home, which is still one of my favorite things ever. I can just like rent movies that are actually in the theater. Um, I think you saw Nobody, right? I did. In fact, I just revisited it because it just hit VOD to rent. So that was actually going to be my second choice this week because uh, I have not seen that many movies this week. I've been writing oh. like mad. So uh, that was going to be one of my choices. But uh, we, we can, can talk about it now if you'd like. I can skip past it if you want. You can just No, no, no. Um, yeah, I mean, so... Yeah, we can both talk about. It. I really loved it. Um, I mean, it's it's very it's it's very John Wick, 
that's probably i i don't mean that in like a derogatory way it is a bit derivative of that movie i think it i mean it's made by the same people so and one could argue it it's in the same sort of universe as that i I keep hearing like rumblings that it might be i think i would have I, i think i would like it probably more if it was just because then it wouldn't seem like it was just trying to sort of mimic what that world's all about having said that i in some ways i like it I, I like the character more uh, than I think I like John Wick. Like I like the Hutch Bob Odenkirk character a bit more. He's a little more interesting. Um, I love the fact that he has a family. That's really cool. I mean, it's all if you've seen John Wick, it's almost the same plot uh, to a T as John Wick, with the exception of the fact that Bob Odenkirk has like a family as opposed to is sort of living in the shadow of something he's lost. And he's sort of triggered by something relatively innocuous uh, to kind of go back to his old ways. But just like John Wick, there's sort of a mythology around him. And once people find out who he really is, they're actually really afraid of him. And um, the the other thing that I really liked about it, and I don't know, I don't really think this is spoilers, but uh, whatever. The other thing I really liked about it was in John Wick, he sort of has this a bit of a moral high ground, not like, you know, they, they came in, they beat him up, they killed his dog. They took his stuff. Um, he's kind of like, I just want my shit back and I want to go back to my regular life. That's kind of John Wick's thing. Um, Bob Odenkirk's thing is like, no, I, I just really like doing this kind of stuff. And now I have an excuse to do it. And I kind of think it's fun that it's, it's a very sort of nihilistic kind of approach to that same story, given the fact that he's also like a family man. So I don't know. I I had a good time with how cavalier it was towards its like approach to that premise. Um, And yeah, it was really fun. Yeah. I'd be curious to see if, um, if there is going to be a crossover at some point, I know it's two different studios, so I don't know how dodgy that might get, but at the same time, you know, he's, it really is John Wick light in a way, yeah. you know, with the very few tweaks. Yeah. I mean, almost structurally, it's the same. I mean, the, the the moment when the goons break into the house, what comes of that fight, I swear, is almost play for play what happens in John Wick. In fact, it doesn't even feel like it's set in the same world. It feels like it's just a comic riff on that. If anybody else had made that movie, you could say that they were probably playfully poking at John wick, but it's the same damn people. So what exactly is that meant (laughs) to be? You know, um, you look at it and yeah, it's John wick, but you pull Keanu Reeves out and you plunk down Walter white from the first season of breaking bad instead. You know, it's a man who is asleep and at a certain point he is awake. Right. And he, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and he he finds that not only does he have capacity for violence, he has a great affection for it. Um, yeah, I, I did think it was kind of interesting. I mean, you know, is he merely a bad man who enjoys violence? And you know, the the idea of having a family sort of distracts him from what his real passion is, or is it just is he a guy who is you know is can we look at killing, and this is a horrible way to look at it, but I mean, can we look at killing for him as a kind of art that he has had to set aside for, you know, the purposes of raising a family and doing the nine to five? He had to put away what he was good at and passionate about in order to do what he feels is normal and right for him, you know? And right. uh, and I like that the movie has that kind of struggle where he clearly isn't happy doing that, you know? No. Uh, no. But then he 
dives headfirst into what he's good at. He slaughters a whole lot of people. It's a blast <laughs> to watch. But also you get the feeling that he's not happy with that either because he does genuinely love his family. So, spoiler alert, I guess, even though, come on. But, you know, I do love that by the final scene, there's this kind of wonderful fusion that's taken place where you get the idea that he has found the balance. You know, well, he's, he's he's finally alive. Again. It's basically the the Incredibles. It's the Incredibles, but R rated, because <laughs> he's Mister Incredible. It's like the same journey that Mister yeah. Incredible goes. No, on. absolutely. Mister, if Mister <laughs> Incredible were perhaps more uh, inclined to use an Uzi from time yeah. to time, then yeah, yeah, exactly. And, but I uh, do I do like the movie quite a bit, and I think yeah. Odin Kirk is he's just wonderful in the film. He's we already knew that he was a great actor from playing Saul Goodman in the Breaking Bad universe, but at the same time, I don't know that I had seen him in so much that I didn't quite understand. I don't think we can necessarily peg what his range was. And now after having seen this, it's like, oh no, he is he is quite good, you know. So it's a yeah. wonderful thing oh, as yeah. kind of this vehicle to uh, you know, just to show off what he's capable of. Yeah, I would I would love to see Bob Odenkirk in way more stuff. Um, he's super talented, and yeah, I, I had a great time with it. Um, yeah. Oh, and Christopher Lloyd is amazing in it. We should. Say. Yeah, I want that. You know, if I want that spinoff with he and his uh, other son played by Rizzo. So. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, that would be great. Yeah, I would be. That. I would be totally game for more of those movies. I would be all in on sequels to that. Same. So I gotta say, I am surprised i guess i should say and i don't want that to sound mean-spirited i'm just trying to be honest here but the second season of creep show is impressing the hell out of me after an initial season that maybe wasn't that um great if i can say that you know um i i certainly appreciated the fact that shutter was doing creep show as a series i was excited for it i think the resulting first season fell short in a lot of ways but um you know, I just caught the, is it maybe the third episode, fourth episode, uh, this past Friday of the new season. And so far so great. Like I'm, I'm digging the hell out of this season. I think they're knocking it out of the park. They've stumbled, you know, they're, I think there are one or two stories that I maybe wasn't that wild about, but this past episode, uh, just featured two really, really wonderful stories. There was one called the right snuff directed by Joe Lynch. It's kind of a sci-fi horror tale with Ryan Quantin in the lead. And, it's wonderfully EC comics in that way that Creepshow can be, but by the end of it, it almost feels like the Twilight Zone. Actually, it doesn't feel like the Twilight Zone. It feels more Outer Limits in a way, and it's just uh, it's just fucking fantastic. It's great, and uh, the follow-up is Rusty Cundiff's contribution, which is a high school set tale featuring Molly Ringwald in kind of a supporting role. What's weird about that one is, is that I cannot really discuss its plot at all. Otherwise, it would ruin its many surprises, and that's kind of what's so great about it. Uh, I will just say that it involves uh, a student, uh, a young lady, who is discussing her recent problems with uh, Molly Ringwald's counselor. And the young actress who plays the uh, the teenage student, her performance is fucking incredible like she is so funny and so sly and so like and somehow so real like she's not it, it's a performance that brushes up against being over the top but she also feels like a real human being and it's just uh as a result it's all the all the more funny in a way and uh once you get to the uh 
the big twist, as it were, and everything that happens after that twist. Uh, it's just, again, it's gleefully EC Comics. It's wonderfully Tales from the Crypt in its own way. So uh, I gotta say, Creep Show Season 2, I, I think they're doing a great job. I'm I'm looking forward to every installment from this point on, and uh, I hope they have many more seasons to come. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I So I, I saw the first episode of it. I haven't watched beyond that yet. Um, but I enjoyed it. It was the first one is uh, Model Kid. And yes. I can't remember the title of the second one, but it was basically just like an Evil Dead riff. <laughs> it was it was uh, uh, they just basically did Evil Dead inside of a public access TV station. It was kind of like UHF meets Evil Dead. Which is so weird. The only thing, it's funny, I uh, guested on another podcast this past week, and we talked about Creepshow a bit, and specifically, uh, because it was kind of germane to the main topic, we talked about that specific story, and it was just kind of weird that they went out of their way to have Ted Raimi and the actual Book of the Dead with one minor modification, and yet there's this kind of weird meta thing going on with it, where Ted Raimi is playing Ted Raimi, yeah. And it's like, man, why couldn't you just not do that and make this kind of in the same world? You wouldn't have to draw any direct, you know, connections between that and, you know. But at that point, I mean, there were so many already. Maybe they had to go the meta route to, you know, claim spoof or satire and not get Universal suing them. I don't know. but Yeah, uh, that's kind of what my thought was, because otherwise it is just an Evil Dead thing. Like It really it is. is. It's it's yeah, and I I enjoy it on that level alone. Like it's it's just fun to see more Evil Dead. Um, and it every time I see something like that, something that really you know hones in on what what a great Sam Raimi horror movie is. It just makes me want wish that Raimi was making horror movies still. You know, I I, I know he's doing um uh, in the I don't know in the mouth of or multiverse of madness or whatever, uh, the Dr. Strange sequel, which I'm, I'm happy about. I mean, certainly, you know, I'm, I'm excited, but man, how great it would be if he just, you know, pulled up his sleeves and made a $30 million horror movie. I would just love it. I don't want to sound like one of those fans who shake their fists and say, look, you owe us, you know, I'm not a Snyder bro in that (laughs) regard. Uh, but at the same time, you know, Sam, Sam, if you're listening, <laughs> you owe us. <laughs> you, you go ahead, man, and you do your big budget flicks. I get more yeah, power sure. to you. Absolutely. But maybe once every five or ten years, give us an Evil Dead. Give us a Drag Me to Hell. Give us, give us what we want from you. Is that too much to ask? I think I, not. Yeah, and I think I believe we'll get at least one more from him. Like, I don't think Drag Me to Hell is the last thing he's going to do. And and when you watch his movies, even his superhero stuff, like, there's horror in those films. We've talked oh. about that before. That's why Spider-Man 2 is my favorite comic book movie, is that it it is so in line with his horror stuff. Um, it really just feels like sort of Dark Man extended into a Spider-Man world. And, you know, I, I think that energy that's there. There's no way that he doesn't want to do more horror in his career. Um, So I'm sure we'll see something from him. I I doubt it would be like evil dead four or something. I think that ship has sailed, but like it it would be cool to see him do something similar to it or adjacent to it. Um, But anyway, yeah, I I liked it. I I thought, you know, I, I think we talked about season one and how it was a little, 
disappointing in some ways. Um, Model Kid, I liked. Uh, it was definitely just sort of the opening segment of the Creepshow movie spread out. You know, it's it's like pretty much the uh, the same exact thing as what Creepshow opens with. Um, and yet I was not expecting the opening volley in Creepshow season two to make me kind of teary eyed. Yeah, no, it was it was great. I, I mean, it it that's not really a complaint. In fact, if anything, it endeared it to me more. Like the fact that they took sort of what I almost wish that season one had opened with that. Oh, I think yeah. that's just such a great way to open a creep show TV show. Cause it shows it's like, look, we get why you're here. We want to give you what you want, but we're also going to sort of expand this out a little bit um, and get some great character actors, you know, like th- there was, it, it was, it was a, it was a fun watch. So yeah, I mean, I haven't, I, I'm very excited for Joe Lynch's installment. I just haven't had a chance to, you know, sit down and dive in, but I will definitely be watching them. Yeah, it's good stuff. Uh, what else have you seen this past week? Um, all right, I checked out. I checked out "Happily" uh, by Ben David Grabinski. Have you heard or seen this one? I have heard of it. I've not seen it. Mm-hmm. So um, I am a fan of Ben David's because he is a <laughs> occasional guest on uh, Screen Drafts, which is like I might as well be. Like it should be our sponsor because I advertise them all the time. Uh, but uh, Ben David uh, drafts on drafts on screen drafts uh, fairly frequently. Uh, and uh, so he I heard about this movie a while ago uh, when he was making it. He would he would sort of talk about the process and things like that. And um, uh, Elric Kane brought it up on one of the Colors of the Darks, I think. And, uh, he, you know, he had like generally favorable things to say about it. Um, he didn't say he loved it, but he kind of was like, oh, solid, you know, three, three and a half stars or something not to, you know, just to paraphrase. And, um, so I checked it out. It is, so it's a horror comedy, uh, not it's, it's very horror light, but it definitely, you know, is in the realm of horror comedy. And it's sort of a, uh, twilight zone kind of movie. In fact, it's got a lot of like. Did you ever see the movie The Box? Uh, which one? Oh, the one with uh, where the the guy shows up and he's like, "If you hit this button, you're gonna." Oh get yeah, the uh, the Richard somewhere. Kelly movie with yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, it was Cameron Diaz and uh, Franklin. Yeah, Jones. yeah, yes. So so it's kind of like that where uh, the whole premise is there's this couple. Uh, it's played by um, Joel McHale and Carrie Bish. I think B I S H E U. I don't know. It's Bish or Bish. I'm probably pronouncing it wrong. Bishay, maybe uh, uh, from uh, Red State, right? Uh, yes, uh, she's great in the movie. But anyway, they're they're married and they've been married for like 14 years. And really, the the basic premise of the movie is they're incredibly happy together. Like their their marriage is great, and uh, sort of the way they uh, manifest that is they're basically banging all the time. Uh, like like which is a weird thing, but like then they're with all their friends all the time and their friends sort of hate them, like kind of resent them because they're like, how can they be that happy? How can they be that in love? How can they be that into each other? They've been married for so long, you know, ah, they're not real people. They like, you know, they're kind of mad at them all the time. And, and they're just this flirty, like act like a couple of teenagers constantly. And it annoys everyone. 
Um, and so one day, um, and they, you know, so much so that their friends uninvite them to a big weekend getaway, uh, which to me says, yeah, I get nicer friends, but that's kind of the mean spirited nature of the comedy of the movie. It's, it's just kind of how the movie's set up. One day a dude arrives at their door. This is where I'm getting the box vibes from. Um, and he's, you know, dressed in a nice suit. He comes on in and basically, oh, and it's played by Steven Root. Who's a great character actor. Oh yeah. He's amazing. Um, anyway, so, so he shows up and he comes in and he's like, hi. So, um, and again, this isn't really a spoiler cause this happens very early in the film. Um, and he basically sits down and says, well, uh, so you two have a flaw, um, in, in the great, you know, I represent a higher p- power. You two are, are sort of one of the rare occurrences where you have this flaw that, that you don't experience the law of diminishing returns. Uh, uh, you don't experience what most people do, which is experiencing something once. And then every time you experience afterwards, it's going to get a little less great. Um, that's why you are the way you are. And it's incredibly rare that this flaw exists. And it's even more rare that two people with that flaw would find each other and get married. So, unfortunately, it's taken us a long time to rectify this error. I'm here today to rectify it. He opens up his briefcase. Inside are two giant syringes filled with, like, reanimator liquid, like glowing green liquid. And he's like, inject yourself with this. Tomorrow you'll wake up and you'll be just like everyone else. Um, And, you know, and I've brought you financial compensation. He hands him a check for a ton of money. And he's like, and do that and I'll leave you alone and you'll never hear from me again. And that's sort of when the movie kind of alters into something different uh, than it initially kind of starts out to be. And what happens, and I'm not going to really say what happens from there because then I would be spoiling stuff. um, But decisions are made in that house that lead to a lot of uh, shit that's got to be dealt with. Um, that creates pressing concerns that sort of drive the remainder of the film. And suffice it to say, the couple does end up at the weekend getaway with all of their friends and all of the secrets and questions and all of this sort of pressing in on, on the group themselves. Um, and that's kind of what the movie is. Um, it is, it is fun. Um, it is, there's a lot of great comedians in it. Um, mm-hmm. Al Madrigal's in it and I haven't seen him in anything in a long time. And I love him. Um, he was very funny. So there's, there's a lot of great little uh, comic moments in it. The film's biggest problem is what I would say almost all movies like this suffer from. And it's that you, your setup is very cool, but there's almost no way you can deliver on it. Like the, you, you, you create this really cool, like what's going on? What's the answer here? Do we answer it? Do we not answer it? And, and it's such a hard line to walk that it's very difficult to get to a place where you reach what I would consider a satisfying conclusion. Um, I feel that the film never achieves something that I would call satisfaction in, in the narrative overall. That's my opinion of it. Um, now, having said that, it was a really fun watch, and there's a music choice, there's a song choice towards the end of the film that made me, like, clap. <laughs> like, he put a song in the movie that I've, I've put it this way, I've only ever heard this song in one other movie, and it's incredibly iconic, 
It's not a song. It's if you're a fan of the movie, it's in. You love this song, and it's like it's it's an amazing thing for you. And to hear it in a different movie just creates a kinship with the director. You're like, oh, this guy's a cool guy. Like using this music choice here, that is fucking amazing. Um, and I again, I don't want to spoil what the music choice is, but it really, it, I, I, I'll say it gave the whole movie like an extra star. <laughs> like what might have been a two and a half star movie is like a three, three and a half because of this music choice at the end. Um, and, and I was happy with what he did with some of the characters. But again, just the overall like what's going on, what what is happening with this guy who's giving them the syringes. I was not satisfied with where that went, but I also don't think you really I just don't think you can satisfy. It's like lost. Like sometimes you create too many big questions that just don't have satisfying answers. You know, the last time I felt like I watched something that had almost too great of a setup like that, where you wonder how could they possibly pay it off? It was spontaneous. And I feel like that movie actually knocked it out of the park, you know? Um, So, no, and, and when you first said spontaneous, I was scared. I was like, wait a minute. Are you saying that Spontaneous was not satisfying? No, I'm saying it was, which is, (laughs) I I agree with you that that is rare that movies that swing that big can actually stick the landing to completely fuck up that metaphor. But um, no, that Spontaneous, you know, that's the last movie with that kind of big swing setup that I could think of. And yet, my goodness, you know, that movie, it it never falters, you know, so. Yeah, totally agree. So, uh, yeah, no, I just... uh, I recently managed to. Oh, by the way, as far as that movie goes, I have not yet seen it, but I do want to. I'll uh, I'll make certain to add it to the list and check it out at some point. I haven't watched much recently. I need to. Uh, it's funny. I've been writing about movies more than I've been watching them recently. So uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's wonderful well, and also a bit of a bummer awesome. all at once. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's you're an inspiration to us all because I will tell you, my writing is uh, has not been prolific as of late. <laughs> I'm lucky uh, if I can crank out one a month. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, you know, it's funny, I've gotten to the point where I'm kind of, uh, I'm just banking things to transcribe and write now, so I'm trying to get through as many as possible, but it has kept me, uh, it's kept me hopping recently, so, uh, but I can't complain because I, I, I've gotten some gems recently, I'm starting up, uh, for Bloody Disgusting, I don't think I mentioned it anywhere online yet, but I'm starting up a, a column called... Mask of Insanity, uh, which seeks to basically find actors and actresses who have played masked killers or creatures, you know, behind latex or anything of the sort. And, you know, basically just do a quick intro. How did you get this role? You know, do you like the genre? You always like horror movies, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, a quick wrap up, like, can you give us your overall thoughts on, you know, sort of the production and your time on it in the finished film, blah, blah, blah. The centerpiece of these articles will be the guest in question talking at length about the single craziest or funniest thing that happened to them over the course of making the film. And I didn't know that it would work, you know, because mm-hmm. I maybe somebody's funny isn't maybe or, you know, you're you're assuming that the making of the film was uh you know, not damn dull as it were, but I was lucky enough to talk to Nick Principi who uh, played Chrome Skull and Robert Hall's laid the rest and Chrome Skull laid the rest part two and uh, super nice guy, very funny. And the story he told damn near had me in tears. <laughs> I was howling with laughter. I, I actually had to try and restrain myself to keep from fucking up the audio 
for the That's transcription awesome. later on. So I can't wait for people <laughs> to read that. Uh, I'm feeling pretty good about that. I have another interview lined up with somebody else from an even bigger, you know, uh, well, I say bigger, theatrical anyway, from a theatrical horror film that a lot of people seem to like. And I'm, I have my fingers crossed that his story will be half as funny because if it is, I think it'll be great too. That's awesome, man. I think you mentioned uh, like the idea of the column to me at one point. And yeah, I, I'm really excited to read it. Everything you've been doing lately is great. So I'm for trying. what it's worth, for what it's worth, I'm loving all of it. <laughs> I appreciate it. Uh, hopefully everybody is. I'm, I'm trying, you know, I'm basically, basically I'm just, I, it's funny and it's weird. I mean, it seems obvious in its own way because you hear it so many times, but I, I spent so long trying to break into bloody disgusting and by pitching various things and, you know, even the stuff that I wrote for them initially, you know, I enjoyed, but it was always written from a place of like, well, what would everybody like to read? What do I think yeah. everybody would like to read? Yeah, what so would bloody disgusting readers enjoy? How do I tap into this audience? How do I get the attention of, you know, the editor in chief as well, you know? And, uh, starting with phantom limbs and the stuff that I'm doing now, I'm basically just kind of like, what would I like to read? What would yeah. I find funny as hell or interesting or whatever? And you know, it's, it's served me well enough so far. So that's awesome. Yeah. That that's kind of my same trajectory is like when I finally, cause I was for a long time, I wanted to pitch to bloody and it wasn't until I finally was like, Oh, I'm really interested in hammer movies. I would like to sort of do a column on hammer, like just as much for my benefit <laughs> as anyone else, because it'll force me to sort of, dive deeper into these movies I'm so interested in. And then that was the thing that ended up, you know, working out, but it came from a place of like personal interest that I wanted to go into. So I think that's great advice for anyone that's writing is, you know, write what you're really interested in because that passion will come through in the writing. Well, it's funny. I just, uh, talking about bloody disgusting, John Squires had tweeted something today. Uh, you know, we're recording Monday evening. This will go up on Friday, but uh, John had, I think, quote tweeted Lee Winnell noting something about how, you know, if you're going to be on social media, just talk about the things that you love and maybe that will wind up, you know, uh, getting you work or getting you attention in the right way, that positivity. And John's noted that he is, you know, editor in chief at Bloody Disgusting. You know, he he keeps an eye out for that sort of thing. And, you know, I, I yeah. know personally people who have, you know, I think uh, Raina, who uh, was a uh, a guest on this very podcast, had I, I think I saw uh, when Raina had tweeted something once about um, oh I think it was the slasher franchise, and had a really interesting take on it. And I think I saw John follow up, and that resulted in an article. So yeah, no, I uh, not to belabor the point uh, too late, but um, no, I think that's. Uh, <laughs> I think it's good advice that's certainly not unique to me, uh, but it seems to be kind of out there right now where it's like, you know what? A little positivity goes a long way on social media, especially because it, it stands out in great contrast, I think, to the bulk of what we typically get in our uh, social media experiences. Yeah, so true. All right. I also managed to check out Spine Tingler. Uh, this great little documentary about William Castle uh, mm -hmm. sort of tracks his life from his early days to, uh, you know, through, throughout his career. You know, it provides a lot of uh, really wonderful insight into the man, you know, who, 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 I mean, I love Castle. He gave us some of the most purely fun horror films that can be found out there. And uh, 
the documentary is great in that it reveals how he developed that sort of carnival barker hucksterism that he employed in hmm. so many of his films to uh to eager audiences. So uh, there isn't a whole lot to say about it. You know, it's obviously bolstered by uh, clips of his movies and actually various movies too. Uh, it is chock full of behind the scenes pictures of him. Uh, certainly pictures of him as a young man. You know, uh, there's an interview with his daughter, Terry, who provides a lot of insight into, uh, you know, her father. And it's just, I think it's definitely well worth checking out for anyone who obviously for fans of castle, if you haven't seen it already, but anyone who, just has an interest in that era of filmmaking, especially horror filmmaking. It's uh, it it sort of tickles that perfect nostalgic sweet spot. I think if you are so inclined to enjoy that type of movie. Awesome. Yeah, no, I, I love castle, so I need to check that out. Yeah, it's very good. It's uh, as a result, you know, having watched it, I, I go through these weird kicks where I want to revisit all of his stuff every once in a while, or at least the bulk of the stuff that I know. I haven't seen everything. Uh, those damned indicator box sets are proof of that. Uh, <laughs> waiting for somebody to pick those up for U.S. distribution, Scream Factory. That'd be great. <laughs> you know, I appreciate what you did with Vincent Price. I appreciated what you did with uh, Paul Nashi. Maybe it's William Castle's turn. Just throwing that out there. Well, the but, weird uh, thing about Scream is they've put out several of castle's films yeah just yeah. individually you know um which they i guess put out enough for they... a volume one yeah that's true <laughs> i would i would love a william castle box set from scream i would be all in i bought both the nashy sets i have all three vincent price sets um i think yeah i mean i've bought almost every box set they've put out so i would be all in on a castle set. I didn't pick up the indicator sets. I, I had to draw the line somewhere on money. I've, I've been cautious. Like, I mean, there's nothing I want more than the uh, full indicator hammer sets that they have. They're so gorgeous, oh, but yeah. like, but man, it's like such, well, one, I knew if I bought the first one, I'd be committing to every one they put out. Each one's like 60 bucks or more. Um, and at this point we're on five or six and the other ones are out of print. So the decision's out of my hands at this point. The other problem is most of the movies in those sets are available in the U S through other labels. Um, so it was like a lot of rebuying. Um, and while I appreciate what indicator does and the features and things like that, given the amount of money I spend on Blu-rays, I was like, I, I just have to draw the line somewhere. Um, but I did buy the, uh, indicator Fu, uh, Fu Manchu box set. The Christopher Lee set. Oh, nice, nice, nice. Uh, yeah. That is, you know, it's weird. I love Lee, but Fu Manchu is, uh, you know, that's a bit of a blind spot for me. And um, yeah, I definitely want to check them out at some point. I've always been, even more so than checking out the films, I've always been interested in checking out the Saxon Romer novels, uh, just to read yeah. them and see. Because you know, at that point, it's you know, I can, <laughs> I can read the novels and sort of picture my own, uh, my own casting choices as it were. And it wouldn't feel sure. quite as odd as, you know, watching like, know. Christopher yeah, Lee I, and some unfortunate makeup. I like I understand, yeah. I, I, I understand the time in which they were made. I do not slight him or the, well, maybe the maker certainly a little bit, but you know, not Lee necessarily, but you know, it, Nevertheless, even growing up in the mid '90s and seeing pictures, I just remember thinking, like, this doesn't seem right to me. Like, you know, yeah, that's, so that's, that's maybe that why might I... be why I've been kind of at arm's length from the series all these years. 
Me too. I've never seen them. In fact, um, really, the only reason I bought it, well, one, I just thought, like, if I'm ever going to watch them now, like, this is a good way to do it. I have them all in one set. It's a nice set. I love Christopher Lee. I like a lot of the creatives that were involved in that series. Um, It seems very Hammer adjacent. Um, So it's more just this way I can kind of fulfill that curiosity, um, full knowing how problematic they are (laughs) in terms of what they're putting forth. But I think it's more of like almost like a scholarly thing. I just I want to see them to see what they were and maybe what their impacts were on the on the genre. Um, not necessarily to sort of like go out there and be a huge fan of them or something like that. I don't know. Right. I, I would be curious to see if anyone ever revisits that character in any major way. Uh, like, I wonder if there's a way, because it's not just, it's not merely the casting issue. It's also the, the positioning of, you know, the, the characters as, you know, we don't have to get into that at length, but I, I I would be very curious to see if there is a way to adapt that character into modern times. Not even necessarily telling a contemporary story, yeah. But but doing you know a story set within the proper era, but doing it in in you know in a proper way, in a way that's uh, you know possibly well, hopefully more respectful than say the original takes were. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, and when I when I eventually watch them, I'll report back at least on what my initial thoughts are. I'm sure they'll be complicated, <laughs> but yeah, I yeah. will I will have thoughts. All right. Well, hey, I think it's just about time to start our commentary now. If you are a brand new listener just happening across this podcast, a quick explanation. Scream Addict started out as a podcast hosted by myself where I would invite on a creative in horror. They would choose a single horror film they love, and we would talk about it at length. That's how it started, and we'll get back to more episodes like that soon. We have a spinoff called Foyerism where uh, B, C, and Z-grade movie enthusiast Scott Foy will choose a film for me to watch, and then we chat about it. And then we have this spinoff, Hammer Pub, which you're listening to right now, which finds Paul and myself providing a running commentary for a Hammer horror film. Scream Addicts has always been about sort of zeroing in on one specific movie. Equally, another hallmark of the show is that we can and will digress at times, sometimes wildly, just as one would with any other conversation about movies, and that's certainly true of this spinoff. So just be aware of that, dear listeners, and brace yourselves now. With all that said, on to the movie. Whether you're watching this on VHS, DVD, or Blu-ray, let's all get it synced up to the very first frame, and we'll do a countdown. Now, I'm not actually certain what the first frame is going to be. I am using the Scream Factory Blu-ray. Paul, how about you? Uh, Yes, I'm on the Scream Factory Blu-ray, and when we do the countdown, I'm going to have to leave the mic for a second because the set. I'm watching on a different setup than normal, and I I have to, like point the remote at a thing that's in a different area (laughs) (laughs) so it's gonna be a little complicated but i am on the uh screen factory blue okay so i think the first frame is actually going to be in darkness uh a couple of seconds later we'll get hammer film presents or something of the sort so uh let's go ahead and get ready everybody we're gonna go do the long countdown five to one and then play we'll all press play on play and then we're gonna have a blast ready everyone in five four Three, two, one, and play. Hammer Film Production. Yes, and I'm we good. Get, we get maybe what is one of the more, <clears throat> I would say by this point, maybe the most energetic 
title sequence we've had up until this point. Yeah, this movie, well, yeah, the title sequence, definitely, it's incredibly provocative. It's, it's direct, you know, it feels more energetic. Um, it's, I think this movie is just sort of the, the pinnacle of what Hammer could do at the time that this was made. I mean, it feels big. Um, and you can kind of tell, because this was a little bit, this had a little bit more weight behind it <laughs> than some of the other movies at the time. Like, this was, this definitely has like a studio feel. Um, oh, it's this opening shot tells you right at the offing. It's just like, look, we're not in Bray anymore. We're, we're yeah, playing with some right. studio money. Right. This, is, yeah. this is a film proper, you know, which is, I, which, I mean, this is not my favorite hammer and I adore certainly much of what's come before, but this is maybe the biggest movie that they've made up until this point. It feels. Yeah. And it's, it's an interesting thing because it, it it's another one of those hammer movies that like took a while to get going. Cause like, the original intention was to make this in like 61, you know, like this, this was a movie that they fully intended to make much closer to the other two Quatermass movies with the, uh, uh, original actor too. And I gotta say, I'm so glad that, you know, if, if the result of them having to wait more years than they expected gave us Andrew Keir instead of Brian Dunleavy again, then, um, Everything yeah. worked out well, I think, because and I don't want to piss on Brian Dunleavy. I think in his own way, he's quite good in those movies. There's nothing wrong with his acting, but it's no. his approach to the character where in those movies, Bernard Quatermass, instead of being a uh, thoughtful, you know, uh, intellectual as it were, you know, he's more of a hard charging American asshole. And that's certainly a choice for those movies. And I do like those movies. <laughs> but for this movie, I think Andrew Keir is the perfect choice. And I will say the moment that this opening has always fascinated me because I've wondered about this damn skeleton has every <laughs> stitch of flesh left that skeleton, except maybe the tiniest few tendons and muscles just to keep it all together and whole and <laughs> looking like something you would buy at home Depot. Yeah. You know, I, I think so. I mean, maybe that's where they got the skeletons. Maybe they just went to home Depot. Does um, <laughs> Now, Paul, something that you mentioned last week that I thought was a good idea. Shall we go ahead and begin this commentary by letting uh, folks out there who may only be listening to this as a podcast rather than a commentary, should we go ahead and give them a quick synopsis as to what Quatermass in the Pit is? I think that's a good idea. Um, okay, so I have something from IMDb, unless you have something written up. or you No, wanna, no, no. You, you want to play jazz if you want. I, I have a very brief thing just to give... Yeah. Uh, a give little a context, brief, but uh, give a brief context. I think that's if IMDb idea. can be trusted, and they rarely can, <laughs> but if they can in this case, uh, they tell us that Quatermass in the Pit, aka Five Million Years to Earth, which that's we can talk about that later, but um, they tell us that Quatermass in the Pit is about a mysterious artifact is unearthed in London, and famous scientist Bernard Quatermass is called in to divine its origins and explain its strange effects on people. Pretty simple logline. Doesn't get even close to scratching the surface of what this movie gives us, but that's a, it's a decent starting place, I think. I agree. Um, and I think it's, it's enough to be able to talk about the movie because one thing that's really special about this movie is it is pretty... 
For as convoluted as the mythology it presents is, the movie itself is very simple, right? It's a very simple premise with a very simple execution, um, but that sort of supports how complex the science fiction and uh, elements of the movie are. And and what I really like, I mean, I just wrote a lot about a different Nigel Neal script um, with The Abominable Snowman, and... All of Nigel Neal's stuff basically is about, you know, what would happen if this crazy thing really occurred or this crazy thing really existed? Like, what would what would the reality of that be? Um, and, and so it treats these things with uh, almost like a, a stoicism, a, re- a realism. Um, a methodical kind of approach that you don't normally get in a big idea, alien invasion sort of movie. Um, and I mean, all the Quatermass movies do this, but I think this movie is the apex of, of that kind of idea. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is, I think this is Neil's masterpiece and he certainly wrote a lot of really wonderful things. Uh, certainly big things and things that he, would later go on to disown that we still love anyway. Cough, cough, <laughs> Halloween three cough. Yeah. Uh, you know, he wrote this excellent sci-fi uh, a TV movie called the stone tape. Uh, he wrote, you know, just a couple of episodes ago, we talked about the hammer film, the witches, which he adapted yeah. from a novel. Uh, I think one of his finest works was the uh, screenplay for the television adaptation, not the, not the hammer film as it were, but the 1989 television adaptation of Susan Hill's, the woman in black. Uh, He's his work on that is just absolutely wonderful. The way he distilled that novel and made it just fucking terrifying, mm-hmm. um, you know. But Neil Neil is an interesting cat, and he he wrote a lot of wonderful stuff. You know, this movie is yeah, as we've noted, based upon a character who had previously been the subject of three television serials and two feature films, which adapted the first two serials, and this film adapts the third serial. And Neil wrote them all. Uh, yeah, I was gonna. I think- Oh, oh, no, sorry. I was just going to say, no, I think I think Quatermass in the Pit is, to my mind, and from what I can tell from having you know read about it at length, I think this is widely considered to be his masterpiece. Yeah. And I was going to ask, did, have you seen the, the Quatermass in the Pit TV version? Like, have you seen the six-part miniseries? I have not, because I will say that I came to Quatermass late. Enough. You know, it's funny. The thing about, I mentioned it being his masterpiece. When I started getting into Hammer... Or, well, let me back up. When I started recognizing what Hammer was, rather than just catching the occasional movie and loving them and not realizing that they all came from the same studio, but this was probably the late 90s, it was around the time that Anchor Bay had the Hammer license, and they were mm. releasing uh, these great plastic clamshell VHSs uh, that were collector's editions, and in widescreen, you know, they were able to ban that <laughs> because it was such a new thing back then. Yeah, right? right. And just being a burgeoning film nerd, I mean, I, I was all about that. There's a, if you can catch it in the background here, there's a quad poster for the witches. For the witches, wall, yeah. Which I, I was like, oh, witches. <laughs> but um, no, so, you know, they were releasing all these things. And of course, as with every, every, <laughs> Every line of Hammer releases, of course, you have uh, Dracula, Prince of Darkness coming out first, right? And you have uh, a couple of the big names, the big hitters. But um, one of the first ones was Quatermass in the Pit. And so I remember 
I never watched the movie, but I always kept coming across it. I would recognize Christopher Lee as Dracula. I would recognize Peter Cushing as Frankenstein. But Quatermass in the Pit, I never quite understood. And then inevitably when the DVDs came out, Quatermass in the Pit was always there in the mix. It always seemed to be one of the quintessential Hammer films. And yet, for whatever reason, I never bothered to watch it. I came to the Quatermass series late, about a decade ago, when a buddy of mine loaned me the film versions. You know, uh, the Quatermass Experiment, Quatermass 2, and then this. Mm. And I just, I, well, they're wonderful films, right? They're, they're fantastic. And I think, though, part of the problem with me coming to the character so late is that, you know, if I had... If I'd gotten into Quatermass early, I think I would have wanted to. Hello. I'm here. I'm not going to watch a smeary you know, YouTube video. Uh, I haven't bothered to import any of them yet. I'm still, uh, Oh, hello, Paul. I'm here. Yeah. I, you dropped out for a minute and then I caught you back here at the end. <laughs> okay. No, no, no. I was just saying, you know, part of the problem with, uh, coming to Quatermass late is that I've always held on to the hope, uh, that the serials would get a good release and that hasn't happened yet. I'm going to have to break down and watch them at some point because I am kind of fascinated to see them. Uh, I really want to see versions of the Quatermass Experiment and Quatermass 2 with different actors in that role. I would love to see, there is a fourth serial that came out in the 70s that brings a uh, sort of definitive conclusion to the character yeah. called um, oh, what is it? The Quatermass uh, Isn't it just the Quatermass Conclusion? Or yes, something? the Quatermass Conclusion, or yeah. I think it's just called Quatermass in the Quatermass, way. yeah. And Nigel Neal wrote that too, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, and so, there was also, uh, which I have seen, and it's fantastic, there is a live TV drama sort of one-off remake, uh, which I think we discussed when Michael Verratti was on, uh, but there was a live TV drama of the Quatermass Experiment featuring Jason Fleming in the lead role, mm. which I gotta say, I wish it led to more installments. Uh, I believe it's available to view still on Amazon Prime's BritBox, so that's definitely worth checking out. Well, and that's that's why I was gonna gonna ask about uh, one of the reasons I was asking if you had seen it. I haven't seen it either, but I was reading about it um, and some of the differences. And one, it's really interesting to me that in that in the TV version, uh, Quatermass was played by Andre Morel. Yep, which is really interesting that he didn't play him here, given that he literally had just done like Plague of the Zombies. Like he was doing things with Hammer at this time. It's odd that they wouldn't ask him back. They did. Uh, they actually did approach Morell. He was the uh, their first person that they intended to cast, apparently. Uh, at least Hammer. Not necessarily Roy Ward Baker's first choice, but Hammer's. Certainly, they had reached out to Morell, uh, from what I've read, and he turned them down simply because he didn't <clears throat> want to repeat work that he'd already done, apparently. Hmm. Well, I, yeah, and I read, I read, I read conflicting things about that. And then in the commentary, um, I listened to there's there's a whole bunch of commentaries on this movie, three um, of them. But yeah, the, but the one Beck, the Baker, the one I paid the most attention to is the Constantine Nasir and the Steve Haberman one because I just I really like those guys. I have not listened to that one yet. And um, they talked about that, and they both seemed pretty 
they were like, yeah, we, we've heard they offered to him, but they're like, but we just don't buy that. Like actors back then didn't turn down work. They're like, they're like, oh yeah, he'll, they're like, cause a month later he did vengeance of she and they're like, oh, so he wasn't, he was, he wasn't too good for vengeance of she, but he didn't <laughs> want to do Quatermass again. Yeah. They're like, so I don't really buy that he would turn down work, like paying work at that time, especially this one, which would have had a nice paycheck a- attached to it. Um, so there seems to be a bit of like some deviating opinions, uh, his, like in some of the historians, but at the same time, there's no record of it. So it's like, it could have been the case. The one thing that I'll say though, is that from everything I've read and, and what they were saying, Andre Morel's uh, Quatermass is pretty much a lot like his character from Plague of the Zombies. So he's more fatherly. He's more empathetic. He, he has a little bit more of like an emotionality to him and he's not as prone to anger. And they like, especially in the Nasir Haberman commentary, they basically were like, this movie would be better with Morel. They're like his Quatermass. They, they, well, and they said that, and I'm not saying I agree with this. I just thought it was an interesting talking point is that, their opinion is that his Quatermass is just a far more interesting take than the sort of loud, angry, you know, intense Quatermass that we get. What What are your thoughts on that? I well, you know, listening to um, the other commentary, the third commentary with Baker and Nigel Neal. You know, Neil notes his kind of uh, displeasure, obviously, with Brian Dunleavy. He notes there were three different actors who played Quatermass three different times in those three original serials. Why they couldn't hang on to an actor, I I don't know. Um, You know, I got to say, like, again, I'm not – I appreciate what Dunleavy does, but it's just obviously not what the character is meant to be. And, you know, this is coming from the creator too. Neil – very much appreciated Andrew Keir's work in this. And I got to say, I like that Quatermass here is certainly a man who's far more likely to rely on his intellect than resorting the fisticuffs, you know? Um, but at the same time, I appreciate the fact that he does have an edge to him. You know, he does, he is prickly. He is kind of commanding in a way. And, um, you know, I and again, you know, Neil noted that he far better captures the character that he had written. Uh, and I think just I think Kier is wonderful. You know, he had previously worked with Hammer. Uh, he was one of your favorite characters, I think, if I'm getting this right. Uh, Father Shandor in yeah, yeah, yeah. Darkness. Yeah, he was Shandor. Wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful or actor. Shandor, but... depending on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. All that fun uh, stuff. But, you know, he, he he's a man, again, not given the fisticuffs. He uses his intellect and reason. But he's this very sort of rough-hewn gentleman hero that doesn't really feel beholden to any specific trope. And as a result, you know, therefore he seems so much more real to me. And I have not, you know, I can't comment on Morel's take on the character in that serial because I haven't seen it, but hearing what you've said just now, I got to say so far as basic approaches to the character, I much prefer the idea of Kier here. Well, and I, yeah, and it's hard again, I, I, without seeing it, I, I, I do think it would be really interesting to see a more warm Quatermass. I, I think that would be fascinating. I'm really excited to eventually watch that miniseries for that reason, um, because that sounds like the biggest difference. 
Um, in fact, I, you know, the film seems to hew pretty closely to what that series was, with the exception of a lot of backstory. <laughs> and also the uh, haunted house sequence is way extended in the, uh, in the miniseries, from what I can tell. It, there's a lot more to it. Um, there's actually like a family that's living there that's on the, in the process of moving out that has like stories about being haunted. There's like stuff about what happened in the past. Like they go really deep into the Hobbs end uh, sort of housing, um, which is really interesting. Um, but I think I, I love all the decisions that Neil made in adapting the script. I like that they all meet in the pit for the first time, like all of the various characters um, you know, cause like in the, in the miniseries, Quatermass and Roni are like old friends. They've known each other for years. They go fishing together. Like they've, they, they, they're not, you know, they're, they, they have like a huge history in this movie. It's like they meet sort of in the process of everything that's happening and it, it, it gives it more of like a visceral intensity. Um, so it's just, it's interesting that they're so different yet written by the same person. And that's why, like, it's hard for me. I've listened to some Nigel Neal commentaries before and I'm going to be totally honest. Like it's hard for me to take what he says seriously because he just conflicts himself so much. Like, I mean, this is the guy, you know, he wrote the miniseries. (laughs) So like he wrote the same, all these things that he says he has problems with, like are still his words. Um, and yeah, so I think he's just well, th- one of those people that disparages his work, and that's what he does. <laughs> I think, yeah, I mean, he is definitely, there's very much, you know, there's there's some Harlan Ellison and Alan Moore level uh, just curmudgeon leadness, if that's a word. Um, but it is. especially in regards to how people <laughs> choose to adapt his work, I'm sure if you asked him about his original teleplays, uh, they were probably perfect, you know, but oh, yeah. the, right. the adaptations, <laughs> you know, that process is not that great, which is funny because, you know, I was talking about Susan Hill's The Woman in Black a moment ago. It's crazy that he would get so frustrated and outspoken and angry about the, uh, the adaptation process with his words and his screenplays, you know, and teleplays yeah. and whatnot. And he would get so very pissy about them. But when it came to adapting other authors works, as in the case with, uh, you know, the woman in black, you know, he would just change swaths of things, you know, he would change oh, yeah. things that, you know, I think in that case, he started right with the lead character's name, you know, uh, Arthur yeah. Kipps, you know, which is an HG Wells nod. And he changed, he just decided that he didn't like that name. So all of a sudden it was Arthur kid. And it's just like, okay, are, are you really going to be that pissy when people muck about with your words? But when you're adapting somebody else, you're just like, anything goes. Right. That's so true. And uh, we're in the, I, I really want to kind of hone in on the sequence really quick. Cause it's one of my favorite things in the movie. Um, and it's indicative of what I think this movie does so well. So, it's taking like a haunted house aesthetic and really this, this feels like a color Gothic hammer horror moment inside that house, which isn't really like what the other Quatermass films ever felt like they were shot like in the English countryside, you know, these, those weren't like studio films. They felt much more independent that had a very like, you know, hammer almost like even Roger Corman feel to it, like with, with his Edgar Allan Poe gothics. And then we're also scientifically attempting to explain ghosts. You know, we're tying we're roping in all supernatural entities into this one small story in an attempt to explain like the whole of human history's relationship with things it can't explain. 
Um, and and what an impressive thing to attempt to tackle in such a quick amount of time, and yet it does it so well, you know, and so eerily. Yeah, I do. You know, it's it's a sci-fi haunting. You know, I there's that idea uh, that I love. You know, that everything is magic when you don't yet understand it. You know, or have an explanation right. for it. And I love that this is this is a hammer horror film. It absolutely is, but. You know, it, it it's able to really delve into the gothic horror that we know it for. It certainly has that feel while still staying firmly planted in the real world via this fairly crazy sci-fi tale. And, you know, and then, again, we talked about it with Quatermass, you know, this movie and featuring heroes who use their intellects rather than, you know, their fists. You know, if you take that and you couple it with this approach of having a mix of horror and sci-fi with the unknown ultimately having a scientific explanation and i know i come back to this a lot but it's very true i mean that's very doctor who in its own way you know i mean this this whole film it feels like it's very much a part of the third doctor's era uh the third doctor being maybe the only doctor who straight up resorted to fisticuffs at times sure but um you know i just loved it around this time you know the 50s 60s 70s you could have these wonderful sci-fi horror tales that challenged all of the tropes that we sort of took for granted when it came to, well, hauntings as it were. Yeah, no, that's, that's true. And the doctor who stuff. Yeah. I mean, this movie more than the other ones feels very, I mean, and again, I'm by no means a doctor who scholar. Um, although I did read that there's a Doctor Who episode, uh, a John Pertwee episode that's like a direct takeoff of this movie. Um, really? Yeah, that's like like borderline ripoff is what they were saying. But you know, they're like, yeah, that's just kind of what happened. Um, and that sounds right, actually. Yeah, <laughs> like like literally almost like the same exact plot and everything else. But it, you know, it's I think oh, it was called the Demons. And it was from 1971, and it starts out with the excavation of a spaceship. There's like a host of a like a demon-like creature from another planet in there, and then the military comes in, and there's arguments between the doctor and the military on how to handle it, and it just kind of follows the trajectory of this the same kind of story. So I was like, man, I really want to watch that episode now. Um, you know, I have not seen that one. I'm I gotta admit, I have not seen all of the third doctors. Uh, Run because even though I like Pertwee quite a bit, um, his you know, some of his stories just aren't that gripping to me, or at least the ones that I've seen. And as a result, I haven't really gone out of my way to try and uh view his run in full. But that one actually sounds pretty great, yeah, yeah. I, I have to eventually fill in that, that Doctor Who gap. All I've seen is I've seen Ecclestein and I've seen Matt Smith or not Matt Smith, uh, 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 David Tennant. I watched all his stuff, um, and that's that's it. That's all I've seen. So I have I've to watch say, a man, lot of a, Doctor Who. A Hammer fan would, and that's the great thing about Doctor Who is that you can leap around like crazy. You don't have to start back in 1962 and work your way forward episode by episode. It's just not that kind of show. But I would recommend. Sure. Any Hammer fan should love the fourth Doctor's era. That's Tom Baker. He's the guy that, you know, kids who grew up in the 70s and 80s, especially here in America watching PBS, would know as their Doctor because that's all we got over here for the longest time. He's he's the guy with the big goofy grin, the fuzzy hair, and the big long scarf. And uh, Yeah, I know who that is, yeah. Yeah, there yeah, was I, a... I, I, would, I recognize sort of the description, you know, just from, like, images and things like that. <laughs> Well, there was a run of um, 
his, I God, I want to say it was his second or third season. And it's just like nothing but these gothic sci-fi horror tales that feel like, well, Doctor Who doing a riff on Hammer. And uh, yeah, my God, they're, they're, they're marvelous. Uh, the, the Mask of Morbius and uh, Image of the Findal especially. And so many during that era. Like if you're a Hammer fan, you know, it was, it was Hammer on a budget, on a TV budget, in fact. But they're, they're just marvelous. Sometimes a limited budget, you know sparks more creativity in certain ways but no that's that's cool i'll have to check that out um i think is there a place where you can stream all the doctor who's or no so all of the new who which is considered to be um everything from uh, chris eccleston's ninth doctor on including the spinoffs i think they have torchwood as well I'm not sure if they have sarah jane adventures uh but you can find all of that on hbo max all of the early stuff Literally, I think all 26 seasons from 1962 into the late 80s, from the first Doctor to the end of the seventh Doctor's run, all of that can be found on Amazon Prime's BritBox. You could literally start at the beginning and watch it all. Hmm. Wow. All right. Well, I'll have to check that out. Um, one thing that I want to talk about um, is Roy Ward Baker uh, and and just sort of his his impact on this movie and and just as a director in general because i'm a, i'm a huge roy ward baker fan and uh in the commentary they said something that kind of like bothered me a little bit <laughs> uh and i and again i love their commentaries um were they talking shit about roy ward baker no but they they did the thing they did the thing i don't like where they started talking about a tours and then, uh, and this is this is you're gonna laugh at this. This is what bothered me. They're like, they're like, oh well, you know, this this feels like it was made by an auteur director, but you know, Roy Ward Baker is not an auteur. And I was like, now wait a minute. <laughs> but, but but I you're think gonna he would... you're gonna bring up the word auteur, and their whole point is like, you know, obviously when it comes to auteurs, they're supposed to have sort of a a a, a theme that carries through all of their work. Right. Like, so a true auteur has a consistency of thematics and Baker was more of a workman's director, right? He would go where the work was. He did a lot of television. Um, but this is also the guy that did, as I mentioned, we, you and I talked off Mike the other, the other week about a night to remember, uh, which is like one of probably one of my favorite movies from the fifties. Um, and I would say the best Titanic movie. Um, and I'm a big fan, as you well know, of James Cameron's Titanic. Um, and and then, funny enough, I was reading about it, and that was why he got this job, was because Anthony Nelson Keyes uh, suggested Roy, Roy Ward Baker at the time, just Roy Baker, uh, because he was like, "Well, look at look at A Night to Remember. Here's a movie that is a, a special effects movie, but it's also a dramatic movie." He's a great technical director that can handle both and meld them together well and bring a bring a really big behemoth movie in on time and on budget. That's who we need for this movie. And that's why he got the job. They they wanted Val Guest, but Val Guest was doing um was it Casino Royale? I, I like Val Guest. He would not have given us the movie that Roy Ward Baker no, did. No, here. no, no. Um, Roy Ward Baker's movie is way better than what Val Guest would have given us. And again, okay, so also the guys on the commentary, <clears throat> these motherfuckers. Um, 
<laughs> one, I don't think, you know, even though it sounds like they were lightly disparaging him, I think Roy Ward Baker would likely take that compliment. You know, I don't know the men, but just from what I've listened to, you know, and certainly knowing him hey. through his films, if I do yeah. it all, I would say he would take that almost as a badge of honor, as it were. And two, you know, I I don't know where those guys are from, as it were, but I gotta say, you know, when you look at where different places, what they prize as who, you know, is the most important facet of any film production, you know, sadly here in the States, we, uh, you know, it's actors. It really is by and large to the mainstream. It's, it's the face on the poster, right? That's the thing that matters most. You know, when it comes to the French, it's, it's the auteurs, it's the directors, it's the filmmakers, right? When it comes to the UK, it's the writers. The writers are the big thing. This is not a Roy Ward Baker film, and I don't think he ever would have said it was. You know, I don't know that they even did a possessory credit in the UK during this time, but this would never have been a film by Roy Ward Baker. This is well, Nigel I... Neal's joint. You know, yes. the, if yeah. the writers, the most important horror fans out there. You know, check out The Wicker Man and pay close attention to the opening title sequence, and you'll note that it doesn't say a film by Robin Hardy. It doesn't say Robin Hardy's The Wicker Man. It says Anthony Schaffer's The Wicker Man. Anthony Schaffer is the uh, incredibly, you know, well-respected and popular playwright who gave a sleuth. His name is the one that's above the title in the UK. You know, the, the Brits, I think appreciate the, the 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 writer more so than the director. And that's no slight to the director. Uh, I think Baker does a marvelous job of bringing Nigel Neal's work to life here. Neal himself seemed appreciative of it. And, you know, I, I, I refuse to look... I, I don't hate the idea of auteurs. I think in some cases it works. If you look at somebody like Cronenberg, you know, that man fits that mold. It doesn't matter. Even the films that he adapted from novels that didn't originate with him he still makes mm. that shit his own right but at the same time i refuse to look down my nose at what we would call uh uh journeyman or workman like directors right because baker knocks it out of the fucking well that's i think that's my other my thing is like and we've talked about this before so i won't go too deep into it but i guess my problem is like why, why can't calling them auteurs just feels so like hoity-toity like why can't we just call them good directors <laughs> <laughs> like well, like because... when you bring up Cronenberg, you know what, dude? Like, yeah, his movies are all good and they all feel a certain level of quality that has his signature. That means he's a good director. I don't know why we have to call it a tour. Like, why did I... we have to create a word that like differentiates some directors from others that 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 then sort of disparages people that that maybe like allow themselves to have more creative freedom with style. Like, I mean, I actually think in some ways it's more impressive when a director can step into something that is completely outside of their particular style of filmmaking and make something technically and creatively sound. That's also very entertaining. You know, that is just as impressive as Cronenberg making eight Cronenberg movies. I agree with you. I think the problem. Okay. So, if I can sort of parse your argument here, I agree with you. I don't have a problem with the line that's drawn. I have a problem with one side of that line looking down its nose at the other. I think that you need 
you don't need, but I can appreciate the fact that we can look at Cronenberg and the fact that all of his movies, you know, it's not just a matter of him being a good director. It's also him crafting the material that he is filming as well, right? So that every installment, every every film that he's made has all the same thematic concerns. You can see an evolution there no matter how different the stories but, are. From but the, isn't from the that... And I'm, now, yeah. with Roy Ward Baker... You know, A Night to Remember couldn't be, you know, I don't know that that shares any thematic concerns with Quatermass in the Pit, which I'm not sure shares any thematic concerns with Scars of Dracula, which shares any thematic concerns with uh, 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 Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires, you know? But that doesn't make him lesser. No, and he's made some of my favorite, like, he made my favorite Amicus movie, like, he made Asylum. Vault I love Asylum. Vault of Horror is great, too. Vault of Horror is great. I love Seven Golden Vampires. Um, I'm even a big fan of Monster Club. Like, he's made a lot of really fun uh, movies from that time period. But again, you know, and and yes, you're right, man. Like, like Cronenberg, saying he's a good director is oversimplifying. But again, good director can mean a ton of things, right? And, and I think, like, if I say, hey, Cronenberg's a really good director, that's assuming all of that other stuff is also happening, like, you're not a good director if you're not able to craft, you know, to have an impact on each element of the filmmaking. That's that's what a good director does. But, like, it, it's just different people have different aims and different goals. Well, but, but, but I, and, I, and I think it's okay to acknowledge that without – again, I think the problem for me personally is that you could use one side of that coin to disparage the other or knock the other or undercut it. Now, I will say this. The difference between the two for me and why I appreciate the distinction is that if I hear that term bandied about with Cronenberg or Takashi Miike or anybody else, you know, Mm -hmm. then if I watch one of their movies or two of their movies or three of their movies and I find that I like them and I appreciate what they're saying and I can see a kind of continuity of theme there, then Mm -hmm. I'm going to want to go back to the very beginning of their filmography and work my way through all of them. Yeah, yeah. With Roy Ward Baker – I can look at all of his movies and see that he is a fantastic fucking director and I'm not going to knock him for not being quote unquote an auteur, which is a dumb sure. fucking title, I admit. But again, using that distinction. It just sounds annoying, doesn't it? It, it does. It does. <laughs> but, you know, but at the same I, time, I have a chip on you know, my shoulder about things like that. <laughs> I can appreciate the distinction, though, because I can watch Quatermass in the Pit and then watch A Night to Remember and then watch The Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires and realize, okay, that's what that guy was. He did it incredibly well. I don't necessarily need to start at the beginning of his filmography and follow anything through. When I get to his other movies, I will get to them and I will appreciate them, but I don't need to sort of uh, uh, consume all of his stuff at once. You know, and I, to me personally, that's the distinction that I find between the two. And I get that. And again, I, I understand that like when you watch Kubrick's filmography, there's definitely through lines that are unique to Kubrick and that his movies all feel of a piece. Like, I'm not saying that isn't true. I just, I, I don't. Yeah. Anyway, it's fine. Um, but it, it, annoyed, you know, you it annoyed me to specifically bring up a tour. Like in, it annoyed me when someone was like, Oh, we're going to talk about a tours specifically in relation to how this guy's not one. And I'm because like, using it like a why baseball bat up? To <laughs> yeah, it's like, why is that even a talking point? On, like here, if, if, if we're going to say that he isn't one, if like, you're saying that this feels like an auteurs movie, then in what way? Because the idea that it would be an auteurs film means that there's going to be some connection yeah, to and, another and again, movie out there. And it's like, like I don't want to speak out of school. Like I'm, I'm, I'm sort of paraphrasing what they said. I don't want to put words in their mouth. I, I, I they, my point is this, like 
it, the word was brought up. The word triggers me for sure. So it might all be on me. But like <laughs> at the end of the day, I would argue that Roy, my point is this Roy Ward Baker deserves to be mentioned alongside any of those great hammer directors, yes. whether they're auteurs or not. Cause I think the auteur theory would apply more to someone like Terrence Fisher, Terrence Fisher, right? Absolutely. because he's somebody that like definitely has like creative thematic through lines through all of his work. And I, I have no issue with that, but like, I don't think, and, and while I do believe Terrence Fisher is a superior director, as we've talked about many, many times, um, he's superior to most directors. He's one of my favorite directors. I do think Roy Ward Baker deserves to be mentioned alongside of him. Um, and I think Roy Ward Baker did a lot of great things, even if, you know, his stuff was a bit more for hire, you know, but he clearly, he, he did make some duds and he wasn't as big of a gothic horror guy. I mean, when they gave him a Dracula movie, he phoned it in. He, he even sort of was pretty outspoken about how he didn't really like that kind of movie and didn't really want to do it. It's, it's a weird thing with scars of Dracula. You know, it's like, I don't understand why that happened. You know, if you have a director who doesn't really want to do, I mean, I guess for the money, but you know, that's I a different tell you, I don't, I, is scars of Dracula, one of the better Dracula movies? No, but I got to tell you, I don't think it's the worst. Like it, I give me scars of Dracula over satanic rights any day of the week. I yeah. do think it's at least competently made. Yeah, well, and, it's yeah, but I think that he, you can tell when you're watching that movie that that Baker's not super invested in it, like he is in some of these other ones. I don't know, like there, there's a sense of, I, and I can't quite put my finger on it, and I'm not really prepared to. I, but I, I just feel like when I watch Quatermass and I watch Scars of Dracula, like Quatermass feels like here's a director who's really engaged in making this special. And in Scars of Dracula, it feels like here's a director who's trying to get this movie done. Yeah. Yeah, I can't argue that. Um, but I just, but yeah, going back, that annoys me now, too, the fact that they brought up the whole auteur thing. But, you know, it, I was listening yeah, I, to the commentary. It, just, it was something that, like, I, I felt like I had to bring up. And I'm not trying to be all, like, negative about it. But it's no, like, no, 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 I get it. But after, especially now that I'm a huge Night to Remember fan, I'm like, oh, I got to defend this guy. Um, look at this. This is a, this is a gorgeously made, it's a very beautifully made film. But what I love about it is, it's very unshowy in its way. And, you know, in his commentary track with Neil, Roy Ward Baker noted that he didn't like for his camera to be, as he put it, a personality in his films. He didn't want the camera swooping in and out and booming up and around. And, you know, he didn't want to pull, you know, certain camera tricks and whatnot. He, he doesn't want you to be aware that there's a camera there. He doesn't want to constantly remind you of the artifice uh, you know, behind the making of the film. And I got to say, I appreciate that. You know, it, this is one of the better looking Hammer films, but it's not necessarily, you know, it, it doesn't draw as much attention to itself as some of the movies that we kind of hold in high regard, as it were, in Hammer's catalog. That is true. Yeah, it's, in some ways it's more observational. Um, and yet, like I said, what, what's impressive about this movie is it's it's small, but it feels big. Um, a lot of the shots and, and later in the movie, we do get some very impressive studio esque action with lots of extras, big sweeping shots, cool set pieces. So, I mean, the movie does have the benefit of a bit more of a budget, you know, than 
than some of the other Hammer films of its of its kind. But it's also indicative of like what it's referencing. I mean, this is a big homage to you know, well, clearly H.G. Wells. Um, <laughs> you know, Martians. Uh, there's there's a lot of War of the Worlds sort of tie-ins. Um, I think even Neil talked about how big of a fan he was of War of the Worlds and how he he wanted to specifically homage him. And then there was an author I was reading about M.R. James, like an English author who wrote like ghost totally. stories like that. Yeah. And I've read a few of them and yeah, like stylistically and just thematically very much in line with that. So I, I think it's a cool amalgam of like just different authors and sort of narrative personalities of that time um, coming together in something really spectacular. And, and a lot of those are ultimately human stories. Like they're these big science fictiony things, but the core of it is the human condition, you know, and, and it's very grounded It is outrageous. It's calling this grounded feels weird, but it is. That's, that's what makes it special. It's 100% grounded because the, the, as you noted, the film is very much invested in its characters and their reactions to this. It isn't about, you know, how many times have we watched movies about alien invasions and whatnot? And inevitably, we, you know, we do get the military. We do get scientists, right? We do get all of these characters that aren't necessarily everyday folks, you know? And yet, they're always, they're cogs in in the plot, you know? Yeah. They advance it forward. And inevitably, we have to cut away to, you know, some farmhand somewhere or somebody mm-hmm. on the streets in order to find somebody, you know, to have an entry yeah. point. And I love yeah. what Neil does is that he says, no, we're going to stay in the thick of it. We're going to show you the military. We're going to show you the scientists behind all of this who are right on the front lines. But we're going to treat them as real human beings, you know? And I, I just, it makes it so much more visceral. It makes it so much more... um just immediate in its own way. And I, 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 I just adore it for that. And again, you know, you talked about it talking about the human condition. I mean, this is a movie that came, you know, we're only what 20 some years out from the end of world war two when this movie is released. I mean, yeah, well, there are... yeah, that's a whole nother part of it. Right. Like for sure. Like, and wasn't he originally sort of writing purposefully to reflect like, you know, them, like a lot of the construction that was being done post-war, like, cause the original, the, the original thing was not set in a subway. It was set at a construction site, like rebuilding after the war. Which I, you know, I, I can appreciate that idea. I gotta say, I do love the pit. The pit's uh, way better. Yeah. The, I a hundred percent agree. And well, I think and also it just feels pit, more you're... fitting. Yes. Yeah. And Plus, if you lose the idea of the pit, I think you lose so many other great aspects of the story. But, yeah, I, yeah, I mean, you have the idea of this race of aliens that has just gone yeah. through this genocidal purge. And again, we're, you know, there there are moments in this movie that are obviously evocative of uh, the Third Reich marching. There are moments yeah. near the end of the movie that are very evocative of the Blitz. And, you know, that's obviously this is as much a reaction, I think, to a nation's uh, trauma as, say, Godzilla was in its own way. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah, I think I agree um, for sure. And And so, you know, 
it, 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 it has, as a result, it has so much more weight. And imagine you and I can watch this and sort of coolly observe that, you know, decades and decades after the fact. Imagine what it would have been like going to the theater back in the 60s to watch this fun sci-fi movie. And then you have that undercurrent to it. Yeah. You know? Well, and like I read that in the <laughs> in the TV version during the climactic sort of battle sequence, they actually used footage of the blitz uh, and i'm like i am not okay with that that's fucked up like yes. of actual houses being destroyed like real that like actual footage from the war of houses being blown up during the war and i'm like but that's that's I gotta, horrible <laughs> i kind of like here's the thing is that i you and i can knee jerk that and think that like okay here in the u.s a studio Say a movie, say like fucking Disney using footage <laughs> of 9-11 oh to my. pad out the end of one of those movies. Like we would, we would tear like, Disney to the ground. Like right? the end of Avengers Endgame, like when it's, a bunch it, of shit's being blown up, they show the twin towers. Exactly, exactly. Uh, where Jesus. we see people, you know, we see instead of uh, them filming it, you know, they cut in clips of, uh, you know, those on the ground video cam shots of like, people running away from the destruction with the clouds of, you know, yeah. dust racing after them, right? We would want people's heads. And yet, you know, at the same time, trying to project myself back to this time and, you know, given how, you know, arguably more tight-knit film production and life was over there, I got to imagine there was something kind of cathartic about using that trauma in such a bald way. Yeah. Um at the end of one of these, you know, because again, you're talking about it anyway, it's right there anyway. So did they use that footage as a production, like cutting corners, cutting costs kind of thing? Were they exploiting it that way? Because in that case, then no, I'm not okay with that. Well, either. But if they used uh, it as a way to purge, you know, some, some of the, 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 those feelings of like trauma that they must have still been enduring a couple of decades later, then I can kind of appreciate it in a way. Yeah, I think that's fair. I, I think it was both. If I'm being honest, I mean, I think that it fits thematically. It fit their story. Um, and that was what he was trying to evoke, but also it was made for TV and they didn't have a huge budget. <laughs> Although I did, I did read that was one of the very few BBC productions at the time where the exteriors were all shot on 35 millimeter which was incredibly rare. They so, had to shoot on film back in the day because all of the, uh, you know, that's true of Doctor Who too. I think the uh, the very first serial that, again, going back to the third Doctor, uh, I think the Terror of the Autons, they actually had to, when they shot outside, they couldn't use the TV production cameras, the video cameras. So they shot it either on 16 or 35 millimeter film. Well, yeah, yeah. that And usually it was 16, um, so this was one of the few times they like bumped it up to 35, but yeah, it's, I, I'm excited. I, like you said, I hope that gets a nice release cause I would love to check it out. Um, we should talk a little bit about the effects, uh, Les Bowie again, he comes up a lot in hammer conversations, uh, did all the effects and I, so I think like for me, the bugs, I don't think color helps them. <laughs> no, if this black had been and black and white, it would have been a lot better. Because in color, when they first pull that, we kind of missed it earlier, but when they first pull that insect out, it really feels like a prop. 
Like it's like, oh, here's a here's a fake bug. You know, know yeah, I I will. I agree with you. And I I think it would have sold better in black and white. I don't know that anybody at that time could have made anything better than what uh, what he did here. And I will say there is something about the movie because it's so very well made and because everyone's hearts are obviously in it, actors included. Mm-hmm. You know, that even when they're handi- handling something that, again, is so very much a prop, the fact that they're so invested in it, I more than want to meet the film halfway. Like, it never pulls me out of the film uh, that that it, you know, that it doesn't maybe, you know, even, okay, we're looking at it right now, right? Like, this looks like something that an FX guy sculpted, right? Yeah. It doesn't look like it was a living being <laughs> at any point. But I buy into it because the movie has already built up so much goodwill on so many levels that I just don't mind. Well, and, and I agree. I, I mean, obviously I still love the movie. Um, I do think the, the, if I had to say, what's the weakest component of this film, I'd probably say the effects, uh, not the effects, the creatures. Um, I think generally the effects are good. Like the effects later in the film, um, the autopsy was good. Yeah, but the actual like look of the creatures, we'll talk about when we get there, but the film strip thing you see is not oh, Yeah. Uh, and yeah. and it sucks because there was like that was supposed to show a lot more. Actually, the TV version from what I read shows like way more um and is actually like way more impressive because they weren't forced to cut it. Like the sensors went crazy on the alien annihilation stuff. Like you were supposed to see like aliens heads explode. You're supposed to see like, like aliens dragging their families out of burning houses as they died and stuff. Like it was supposed to evoke like sympathy for them as creatures. And instead you get like weird hop marching because the sensor said, well, you can't show any of that. So you just get weird, like hopping along as they march and, weird stuff like that and it doesn't really land in any meaningful way but like all of that stuff made it into the tv version and i'm like so it was cool to show this on tv that children could watch (laughs) but you can't show this in a movie theater like this makes no sense the censors were crazy um she was just on screen a moment ago but i was wondering if we could take just a moment to talk about barbara shelley oh of course because she gives a typically wonderful performance here. Obviously, you know, she was in the Gorgon. She was in Dracula, Prince of Darkness. She was in Rasputin. Yep. Um, it, it, it just, you know, it's funny. I did a little bit of reading um, on this, and I, I, I came across something that I'd never seen before. Or perhaps I hadn't. It just, it just didn't register. But it, it's just funny to me. Whenever model figures or busts are made of iconic hammer figures. Inevitably, there are representations of Peter Cushing, sure, and Christopher Lee, obviously. And mm-hmm. inevitably, Ingrid Pitt, who was wonderful. I love Ingrid Pitt. You know, her work in um, uh, Countess Dracula and the Vampire Lovers is iconic. You know, uh, no argument there. But what's Vampire curious Lovers, is... Vampire Lovers, another Roy Ward Baker. Absolutely, and it's a good film. Um, but what's curious is... Barbara Shelley, at a certain point, was apparently known as the Queen of Hammer. <laughs> and so I'm just wondering, Paul, where's her damn statue? Like, I I want a Barbara Shelley action figure, damn it. And, you know, That's what I was just about the, to say. Like, I want a Barbara Shelley, like, action figure on my shelf. That would be amazing. <laughs> NECA having a Hammer license, you know, 
uh, which apparently they do. You know, NECA has been doing some marvelous stuff. You know, those universal monsters that are coming up look amazing. Puppet Master. Look, I love Puppet Master. I do. But if Puppet Master can get such a lovingly produced line of action figures, I want a hammer line. And if you give me a hammer yeah. line, I appreciate the fact that I'm going to get Cushing, I'm going to get Lee, I'm going to get Ingrid Pitt. I'm putting this out there into the world. Give me Barbara Shelley, too. I don't care what figure, what character you do an action figure of. And I understand how her roles, as great as it were, don't necessarily translate to having an iconic like figure right but damn it i want one all the same i i agree no i think uh barbara shelley in this movie is wonderful um she she's a really interesting character um she's incredibly intelligent she's sort of carefully she carefully thinks everything out she's a really good sort of foil to bounce off of Quatermass. Um, and they have like a cool sort of intellectual relationship, which I like a lot. Um, and also, and I guess this skips ahead a little bit. I was going to talk Barbara Shelley sort of towards the end because I really love what she does once she becomes, um, you know, spoilers. Uh, but once she becomes sort of like possessed by the alien entities, um, she kind of pulls like a move like she does in Dracula Prince of Darkness where she gets like that weird sense of satisfaction even when her mind is sort of not her own uh, with what's going on like on that weird primal level like she she she's an actress that every second of every performance there is something going on beneath the surface that informs the character and makes it interesting to watch um and layered and this movie's no exception uh it, it's one of the reasons it's so strong is because she's in it and and what she's doing at any given time yeah and it just seems like you know and i gotta say you know even for being a hammer fan i would always watch these movies kind of piecemeal and you know watching the cycles obviously and then cherry picking different ones i would want to watch or revisit going through all of these for this uh this podcast series, it's kind of given me a new appreciation for her. And uh, definitely, I think she's one of the unsung heroes of Hammer. Uh, people should talk about her more. She should be talked about at least as much as Carolyn Monroe or um, uh, my mind is failing me right now. But, you know, any number of the Hammer starlets that yeah. we had yeah. uh, who repeated in multiple roles, you know, um, and she's just for whatever reason, she's not. And it's uh, it's an injustice. Well, I think sadly, in my opinion, I mean, so you mentioned Carolyn Monroe. I think it's because, you know, someone like Carolyn Monroe was more often paraded around in the Hammer Glamour set, right? And, you know, Barbara Shelley wasn't as much treated like that. She wasn't, you know, she she was, but she she wasn't sort of like, presented in an exploitation way very often she was she was handled in a slightly more i don't know never cheesecakey right a little classier and almost too but the the shame of that is that you know the studio didn't give her the same sort of like star push that they did with lee or cushing you know, they, they, they used her in that manner, but they didn't present her to the world as a huge star like they did 
those other people. Um, and or I think even... like the legacy of it, therefore, is that people don't know about her. And and for sure, I mean, like, you know, outside looking in, like I before I had ever watched a single Hammer film, like I had heard of Peter Cushing. I associated him with these types of movies. Same with Lee, same with um, Ingrid Pitt, same with some of those other people. But I had never heard of Barbara Shelley. I didn't know who she was. And now I'm like, yeah, she is one of the most important components of Hammer's sort of stable of creatives. Yeah. And even, you know, doing some reading, like obviously with Raquel Welch and um, Mm -hmm. uh, Carolyn Monroe and obviously Ingrid Pitt, Uh, you know, it's obvious that they tried to sell these actresses solely using sex, right? Like it's no matter how great they were in the films themselves, you know, just last episode with the mummy shroud, we talked about how great, you know, the lead actress was in that. And how did they choose to represent her in the marketing, you know, with a cleavage bearing, you know, like scantily clad in a way that she never appears in the film. Never. (laughs) Like not once, (laughs) but there was always, you know, even like, uh, I remember reading, I think it was in uh, famous monsters of Filmland, the, uh, the rebooted magazine a handful of years ago. Uh, Veronica Carlson, there was a wonderful interview with her. She was in, uh, you know, she's in the Frankenstein movie that's coming up, Must Be Destroyed, who is the, uh, the unfortunate victim of that one sequence that we absolutely hate. And she was also one of the leads in the reboot horror Frankenstein with Ralph Bates, you know, and there was such a big push for her to, you know, be like their new starlet. And so, you know, there were, uh, lots of publicity photos taken with her and Lee and her and Cushing and, you know, and it's obvious like she was dropped dead gorgeous and very buxom. And that's obviously what Hammer was pushing at the time. But again, you know, it just it bums me out that they never. And look, I love Hammer. It always feels a little weird to be throwing stones. But, you know, we can be honest here. It's a shame that they kind of treated, you know, the the women on these productions in such a way, you know, in such a kind yeah. of crass way, even I think, because even though that's the thing in the movies, the movies themselves are much more classy uh, than that, I think, you know, um, as opposed to the marketing itself and how they chose to represent women in the ads and whatnot. It's just, it's, it's a little icky at times. And in Barbara Shelley's case, it's disappointing. Well, the marketing in a lot of ways and like in the, I mean, in the articles I've been writing and like the research I've been doing, it seems like the marketing is sometimes Hammer's greatest enemy, like just not knowing, not necessarily not knowing, but making the wrong decisions when it comes to how they're marketing these films and who they're trying to market them to. Um, Cause to your point, many of these films are far classier than they present themselves. Um, be it a trailer, a poster, whatever. And then sometimes the problem is the audiences, those attract aren't going to like the movie you give them because it's not what you're promising. And then the audiences that would like them aren't going to go because you promise something different, you know? And I think that that often hurt the movies more than if they had just been honest about what they actually were. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, I will say at a certain point, it's funny that you can almost track that evolution between, okay, there were the movies that we got and then there was the marketing that misrepresented them. Right. And then inevitably, I think you're right. People are likely disappointed. So it feels like, the back half of their catalog was trying to (laughs) rather than having the marketing represent the films, they tried to have the films represent the marketing up until that point, you know, like there, there's a turn that comes in a hammer later on where, you know, they're still classy, but they can be a little crass at times too. Yep. No, you're right. 
And we're at a part of the movie now um, where we can start getting into sort of the philosophical implications of all this and how it crosses over into the realm of religion as well. That's another thing I found really fascinating about this film. Like when they, when he's sort of, this guy takes refuge in a church pretty soon here. And I guess I, I was thinking about this and they kind of touch on the commentary, but it's, it fascinates me. I think it's worth talking about. So like what this movie is positing, right. Is that, and I'm going to make it, I'm just going to summarize in a very, very dumb way uh, what's happening. Right. So the, the Martians came to earth. Uh, they took early sort of apes or mankind or whatever we were back then back to Mars they genetically experimented on them and made them into sort of like like hybrids of whatever race the Martians were and whatever race was developing here. Then they brought those back to Earth, and that's what we've descended from, correct? So that's kind of what this movie is claiming. Yeah, yeah. Okay, all right, uh... all right. Yeah. So, so one very, I very love, hammer of the gods. Yeah, it's it's very, and it's also incredibly convoluted, and it's it's a lot to accept. But the movie's really smart, and that it never really like presents it that way. Like, even though that's it, that is what it's asking us to believe. Hey uh, guys, but, we're uh, we're not we're not just gonna outright <laughs> say this, are we? We're not gonna right. do that, right? But what that means then is religion. So so if we descend from these insect creatures, okay? In a way, that is that's a stand-in for original sin. Right? Because we we have now we it's not our fault that we are the way they are. We are. We've we've inherited our like the source of humanity's evil comes from this crazy insect alien race. Um, so there, you know, that's where the lack of compassion comes from. That's where the lack of love, that's where the sociopathic tendencies to hate each and kill each other come from. Um, it comes from this like hive mind that ultimately created us. So in a way, evil is not our fault. It's something we inherited, which is what a lot of religions kind of posit. Like, oh, well, there's this sin that you have to be forgiven of before you were ever even born. Um, and yet in the film, science and Christianity are sort of working hand in hand to solve that problem. And those are things that the insects didn't give us. Those are things we came up with on our own, which is kind of interesting then because it, 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 I guess what I'm saying is it fascinates me that the movie is kind of positing that like religions are all bullshit because <laughs> we came from aliens. That's, that's where this all came from. Um, and yet, it's still an answer to some of these problems and that like it also presents a possibility for like virtue, love and goodness that is uniquely human and, and separate from our insect overlords. But also, you know, having that run counter to what we might consider to be the devil, you know, which I, and on that level, it's kind of weird. It's kind of hard to take seriously because you have this movie that you would think might be making this grand statement on, you know, uh, religion. But it's like, well, OK, so you're going to say that all religion is nonsense. How are you choosing to do that? Praying mantis aliens. Got it. OK, good. <laughs> they hop just around. They just got to hop around. They're not yeah. Even... Also, also. Um, while we're on the subject of things that are hard to believe in this movie, 
outside of the alien stuff, honestly, man, the thing I have the most problem with is like the stupid like TV screen you can hook your brain up to and see images from. I I think that is the hardest thing to swallow in this film. Not the weird praying mantis aliens. <laughs> it's the weird like TV thing that you just like hook your brain up to, and it's like, oh, here's what you're seeing, and here's memories. And honestly, that's it's a thing. pensieve. It's like a Harry Potter pensieve, and I'm All like. You- had to do that why they went that route especially when they weren't going to be able to realize that idea very well all you had to do was have somebody you know stream of consciousness hypnotized talking about what they're seeing and then just see flashes of that why they had this apparatus that hooks you up to a screen and then shows what's going it's yeah it's that was that was an unfortunate choice mr neil I, yeah, I, I'd say and, and nice, again, yeah. I mean, we're we're nitpicking a, a a a great movie, but it's 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 one of those things where, um, it, again, it's in a movie that's asking asking you to suspend your disbelief on a pretty crazy scale, um, and that was like a bridge too far for me. <laughs> I'm yeah, like, yeah. I, I can accept all of these things, but no, I I do love. I like that they play with religion, though. Like, it would have been really easy for this movie to ignore religion, right? And just focus on science. And I think bringing in religion, and not in a disparaging way, because I don't think it does. I don't think it's here to say, like, Christianity's dumb. I actually think it's more saying, like, the things that are uniquely human are what make us us. That's a special thing. And our adherence to both science and religion, you know, and how we can rectify those two things societally as well as mentally is one of the unique human elements that can save us. It's not a thing to be sort of looked down upon. And, And that I thought was an interesting thing because it would have been easy for the movie to either ignore uh, the more spiritual elements of 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 life, or frankly, just kind of outright disparage them. Yeah, and I did appreciate that. Uh, I will say, back left of the screen, there is Hans coming back from Frankenstein Created Woman. So uh, I believe that actor's name is Robert Morris. So it's uh, it's nice to see him with his head there. So, um, so, he, so he did not get to. So he survived. Yeah, he's fine. Wow. He's fine. Okay, good to know. No, I no, I get what you're saying. And you know what's interesting is I, I tend to whenever it comes to the realm of fiction, I tend to roll my eyes whenever you have a point of view that definitively states one side or the other. So because, you know, it's silly because you know what? I it, it doesn't matter if you want to shake a Bible at me and tell me what's what, or if you uh you know, if you want to wag your finger and say, you know, uh, all religion is silly, you know, we, we, there's only science, you know, neither can prove it either way, you know, I, I, as it were. And so to me, the handling of that great question is always more interesting when it's left to the gray, when it, when it's an argument that's never resolved, you know what I mean? When it doesn't disparage one side or the other, um, you know, there's this great, we keep talking about Dr. Who, man. Uh, but you've seen the David Tennant era. There's that great episode, which I, uh, you know, it's cure. Oh my God, man. Talking about Dr. Who pulling from Quatermass in the pit. There is a David Tennant, Dr. Who episode where there is a creature in a pit who is able to project itself telepathically out into the universe and inspire people, 
you know, people's notions of what the devil is. Remember this? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Vaguely. And so, it's been a while. And he has but to yeah. go down into the pit and confront what is essentially meant to be possibly Satan, right? But there's this great moment, you know, you're uh, Russell T Davies. I, I respect what he does so much, you know, a lot of the time. And he, I think he's a fucking amazing writer and he did an amazing job on, uh, the Eccleston and tenant runs of doctor who he's so smart, but you know, he had this great moment where, you know, uh, the doctor is a, a creature of science, you know, that's what drives him. Sure. That's, that's who your hero is for the series. Fair. Right. And it is a children's show at heart. Certainly. But he'll wrestle with stuff like that. And even though, you know, Russell T. Davies is an atheist, he wrote a Christian character into that story. And he has a moment where this Christian character asks the doctor, uh, what do you believe? You know, do you, do you believe in a higher power, you know, or do you, you know, do you believe that that's not a thing at all, essentially, you know, but what do you believe? And he could have so easily had the doctor rely on everything that we know about him up until that point, which is he, he believes that everything can be broken down into science. Right. But instead he has tenant as that character answer. I believe that I haven't seen everything yet. Hmm. And that to me is a far more interesting approach to these sorts of themes, you know, when it comes again to fiction. So, yeah, no, I, I think that's awesome. And you're right. Yeah. Um, and that was one of the things I really liked about the tenant stuff. That's why I watched it was it, I just thought it, it grappled with, yeah, science, faith, humanity, the human condition in really interesting ways. And I think this movie does that, too. I This feels like the what I like most about Doctor Who. Uh, the one thing I'll say about Hans from Frankenstein Created Woman is in this movie, he looks like a nerdy, slightly more handsome Austin Powers. That's just yeah, baby. Yeah, <laughs> it's just I can't. I couldn't let it go without saying that. Um, he he is he he somehow manages to pull off nerdy and beefy all at once. Yeah, like, I don't I don't understand that, but he he yeah. does it. He does. Yeah, and here we are with the uh, you know uh, all the all the actors kind of getting together while things are shaking. Things shake a lot in this movie. Um. I one thing we haven't talked a ton about is um James Donald is Dr. Roney. Uh who was actually top billed in this movie over Andrew Keir. Which blows my mind. Um yeah, it, it's like the only Quatermass thing where Quatermass is not the top billed person in it. Quatermass is almost like a, a co-star, you know, in that regard. Which, you know, and I got to say, like, in a way, it kind of makes sense because I think Roni oh, yeah. is kind of, he is the hero, you know, of the he, story. Oh, he is. Absolutely. And and I love him in this. I think he's great. Oh, I he's think brilliant. he's. I, I do love that. I, I, I love the idea that, yeah, this is still a Quatermass story by virtue of the fact that he's in it, but he does kind of take a backseat to another character. And, uh, Roni's entire arc in this film and ultimately where it leads him, I think is just marvelous, you know, and I, I love that he, you know, I don't know that we've gotten to this point in the discussion yet, but I love the discovery about Roni later on and what divides him from, uh, Barbara and, uh, Quatermass, you know, it's, it's, yeah. And why it takes him in a way to actually, you know, put an end to the, uh, the, the, the threat as it were at the end of the movie. Uh, it's, it's a great performance. And again, you know, you have a hero here who 
I appreciate the fact that these movies, when they're good anyway, they don't feel the need to have a lantern-jawed hero or uh, a, a, a brawny superhero or, yeah. you know, a, a, a matinee idol, as it were, save the day. I love that in this movie specifically, but in so many movies of this type, they manage to have a hero who's just, he's a thinking man's hero, you know? And uh, I, I think Roni pulls that off marvelously. I think there's an argument to be made that as good as Andrew Keir is in the movie, and I think he is, I think I think Roni kind of earns his his top credit. You know what I mean? Well, and again, yes, I, I, I totally agree. And I think like, yeah, and we're kind of jumping to the end a little bit. Um, but I think it's like, it it's again, a uniquely human decision. Right. Like the, like that's something the aliens would never do. Like everything we learn about these aliens, they're all about like proliferating their race and doing whatever they can to sort of create, prolong their existence, even if it means like damaging or altering another sort of separate life from their own. They wouldn't sacrifice themselves like that to 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 save other people wouldn't occur to them. Right. And, and that's, you know, and that's in all great sort of science fiction stories is that like mankind has the ca- capacity to feel that level of compassion. Oh, here, here's the, uh, yeah, oh. this, but no, it's curious that you mentioned the original sin earlier. And I think it is kind of interesting that what it takes to sort of wipe that original sin, that connection to original sin out is, a sacrifice as it were, you know, yeah. I mean that yeah. story, that plot point could have been resolved in any number of ways that didn't necessarily end in a sacrifice. But I, I think it's curious that Neil chose to end the story that way. Yeah. Well, and it, it recurs all throughout storytelling, all throughout our history, right? Like, is that we all come back to the same thing where it's like, Unless it's every... yeah, well, fuck it, man. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> I had to read that book in high school, and let me tell you, <laughs> I have it managed to avoid it all these garbage. years, and I'm not. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not in any hurry. Go ahead and go out. ahead and at me, Twitter. That book is hot garbage, and I hated it, uh, and it's <laughs> terrible. Um, who is John Galt? I don't care. Uh, anyway, uh, so yeah, I mean, it. Yes, I, I think it's it's interesting that he chose to end it like that. It, it goes back to sort of those sort of shared religious elements that are that are in there. But yeah, I mean, there, there's there's an evil, there's a there's a demonic nature that humanity is capable of, but there's also the opposite of that that also that that can dwell within us, and it takes sort of someone to overcome the bad and embrace that sort of selfless good um, to make wider, more sweeping changes. Um, and I think like, that's kind of one of the things the ending represents so well. Um, yeah, and- absolutely. When you have all these people who, and like, you know, we are skipping ahead to the end of it, but that's fine. That's what we do. <laughs> yeah. uh, but you know, when you do have all these people running around like mad and writing and sort of having, devolved to their base selves you know um i love that it takes a person to just think and reason and talk and reach somebody else in that way as opposed to resorting to violence like that's what it takes to 
change it. Meanwhile, you have uh, what appears to be half of London racing about and just causing havoc. And maybe at some point they plan on attacking uh, the capital in the U.S. I don't know. But um, I mean, come on, tell me, tell me. You know, it's funny that the story starts off with Nazis and ends with MAGA, you know. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Sure. (laughs) There's a through line. Good way of looking at it. No, but um, but no, I do love, you know, all this goes back to say that I do absolutely love Dr. Roney. And plus, he's he's my favorite character in the story. You know, as much as I love Kier's Quatermass, like it's 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 the Roney show for me, man. Roney steals it. I mean, he really does. Um, not just because he's the guy who saves the day, but he's a really empathetic character. And his relationship with Quatermass is really interesting. You know, seeing them like. One thing I like about Quatermass being so hard-headed and prone to anger is it makes his relationship with Roni more special because to see him be friendly with someone and to get along and see eye to eye, you get a side of Quatermass that you feel like like with he would have felt a lot more one-dimensional without that. And I think he I think that's sort of an issue with the earlier films in some ways is that he doesn't always have a great sort of foil that he's friendly with uh, to bounce off of that kind of sees eye to eye with him, but might have a different approach, you know, interpersonally. And it's why it's such a smart, I think, um, choice to, as you noted at the beginning of the commentary, to have. Roni and Quatermass meet for the first time here. I think something would have yeah. been lost if they came to this story as old friends. You know, I, yeah, it, it's agree. much yeah. nicer. You can almost imagine, you know, I, to me, there's no continuity between Dunleavy's Quatermass experiment and Quatermass two. So it doesn't even matter. So to me, this is like, <laughs> it's like watching bond films, right? Yes, like you watch 100%. Casino Royale. Yes. You're not looking at Casino Royale it's as a, a follow up by yeah. another day, you know? Yep. Yep. So yep. as a result, I think you can actually look at this movie as, you know, Quatermass is coming to the story as somebody who maybe has never been able to have that kind of connection. But with Roni, yeah, there is there's kind of an understanding between the two men. You know, there's there's common ground there that maybe Quatermass hasn't always enjoyed with people. Yeah. And um, another person, man, there's so this is one of those like commentaries where like, you know, sometimes we we joke like, all right, well, we've ran out of things to say. I feel like this movie, it's like at the end, we're going to be like, we haven't said enough because yeah, there's <laughs> so much shit to talk about in this film. Um but I just saw his face and I realized I don't think we talk about him like at all. Uh, Julian Glover as the Colonel. Yes. Um, and I, I wanted to bring him up because I don't know. I really, I really like him in this movie and I like him because, and I, I don't know how to say this without. All right. I don't think like he's, he's the kind of, he's a villain in a, in a lot of ways. Right. Um, but I don't see him as like a straight villain. Like I don't, I don't see he's him as someone that's like evil. Like I really think he's trying to, I can relate to him and I can empathize with him in a way that I normally can't with sort of the asshole army guy, you know, like he, he isn't your typical shitty government, dude who's the villain in a movie Um, and he he, totally could have been that he absolutely the story the story itself would not falter i don't think for having him be more of a cardboard cutout but i love that neil neil doesn't write cardboard characters 
Uh, I think you're absolutely right. I, I love that they give Breen a, a humanity that, you know, he's, he's, I don't even know that I would call him a villain so much as just a guy who makes the wrong decisions, but he, the decisions that he makes, you know, they're not, he, they're not in the interest of villainy. He's doing his best, you know, like in a very, very difficult situation. And as a result, you know, but the thing is, is he is quite wrong and that leads to his, uh, he, he, his undoing, but he's yeah. very, I, he's sympathetic and he's human. And I understand him in a way that much as you noted, you don't often get with the asshole military types in this sort of movie. Yeah, I found his character to be, like, weirdly refreshing for that reason, you know? Like, because I was expecting him to be just one-dimensionally asshole-ish, and he wasn't. He he was, he really thought that he was, tr- he was doing the right thing, and he was trying to convince Quatermass. He, he wasn't just going at Quatermass and being like, you're wrong, you're stupid, get out of here. He was trying to show him what he thought was reason. And so Quatermass would respond to him in kind and, again, attempt to reason him into his line of thinking. So their arguments were often, like, very understandable, relatable arguments that certainly escalate to more extreme positions because of the situation that's unraveling. But it, it was it was just a different way of kind of playing out that character, and I just – I was so impressed with it. I was like, man. And then I read about it. And apparently, in the TV version, that character is very one-dimensional. So By I'm the like, way, what this the hell? Shot. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Of no, you're good. The just, I mean, there is a GIF of this. If you look up Quatermass in the Pit GIF, it's that reaction shot of um, uh, Andrew Keir as Quatermass jumping and sort of reacting with horror at the yeah. uh, the explosion there, and it's just. This entire sequence, like Baker shot the hell out of it. Um, well, it it's so marvelous. It is. It's it's gorgeous. And like that zoom in on the ship that shows like cells suddenly coming to life. Um, I didn't really put together what that meant. So I actually Googled it and just kind of read up on it. And apparently in the TV version, they make it incredibly clear that like what's hanging all around inside the ship is like nerve endings and it's basically alive. The ship itself is alive and it's an extension of the aliens. Yes. And I, I oh, go love ahead. that. No, no, you're I just want to say, I love that idea. I do too. I wish the movie had more time to sort of expand on that, but I like that it, I like that they made the decision to show it, even though they didn't have a ton of like expository time to like, elaborate on it yeah because they probably knew that they would be sending some audience members sort of scratching their heads and puzzling over that it would have been the easiest thing to simply just not show but instead even though it's a little messy they show it anyway and i'd love that for it i mean uh there's an entire movie that's the thing when you watch a movie like this there's so many facets of this movie that you could simply pull out and expound upon and make an entirely different movie focused on that one aspect. You could make it, hell, they made a movie about a living craft like this. You ever see flight of the navigator? I mean, come on. Um, <laughs> but it's a great movie from child. Funny, funny enough. Uh, 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 I have not seen that movie. <laughs> I awful. It's, I will say this. I, I know, it's a childhood favorite, yeah, but I, just, I have not fine. seen it since I was a kid. So that's one of those movies that I'm a little, little afraid to revisit you know i'll watch it i it's just a you know i've told you before i just missed 
certain movies and that was just one I never caught. But it also yeah. reminds me a little bit. I mean, I would love to ask like 1990s Superman comic book writers if they were familiar with Quatermass in the Pit because there is a huge I'm sure you're familiar with like the idea of like the death of Superman back in the 90s, right? Uh yeah, I mean I'm familiar with it. Um Okay, here's 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 where I digress a little bit. Um in the 90s they killed Superman. The storyline that immediately followed that had four Supermen coming to Earth to basically take his place. Uh, one was a kid, one was half a cyborg, one was a black man in a large, like, uh, metal suit. And they actually took that character and made a movie of him called Steel with Shaq. And really, yeah, that happened. And then, uh, w- what's so weird is they made a- the movie. The character is exactly the same. They gave him the suit. They gave him everything, like all the iconography. But then they divorced it from the Superman mythos, even though it was still Warner Brothers in DC. So whatever the fuck, you know. But then there was one character who was called the Eradicator, who looked the closest to being like Superman out of all of them, you know, because there was this question like, well, which one is the real Superman, right? And there was this one who had long hair, but essentially looked like Superman. He wore these yellow wraparound glasses. He wore a black suit. He had a blue cape. He looked badass as could be, but he was a straight up murderer. Like, so, you know, very Zack Snyder, um, you know, but there was, there Still was, there was seen just it. <laughs> this ice cold version of Superman called the Eradicator. And what you eventually find out is that he took Superman's place because he took Superman's body and basically entombed him in this Kryptonian technology to rebuild his body. But the Eradicator is essentially living metal. And it is the ship that Superman came to Earth in as a baby that crash landed in uh, a Kansas field, uh, basically. And it is a living being, this ship, that was meant to protect the child if it needed to. And so the moment he dies, literally the ship comes to life, takes his form as a man, and then, you know, does what it does. And I just, I, I love the idea. I love the idea of, like, living, sentient transportation, you know? Yeah, it's 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 interesting and it and it raises a ton of questions that the movie doesn't really have to answer because we wouldn't because those characters would never have that answer because they can't talk to the aliens, you know. So I think it's 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 it works in terms of the plot and it fleshes out the world building a bit. Um, But no, that's that's really interesting. All that Superman stuff. I do none of that. So that was pretty cool. Well, again, going Um, back to Doctor Who, too. I mean, the TARDIS has been said to be like a living entity as well. There's a great episode that Matt Smith did that Neil Gaiman, the creator of Sandman, uh, wrote called The Doctor's Wife. And it's basically about for this one adventure, the TARDIS is able to take human form and they're able to know one another like on a level they've never been able to before by simply just talking with one another. Uh, but again, you know, I just, I love that. It's such a fun sci-fi idea that, you know, your, your car might be, you know, a, a living, breathing being, you know, that looks out for you, yeah. you know, or yeah, it's just, it's fun. Uh, not going beyond like fucking Knight Rider and Kit, I suppose. I mean, Kit's pretty cool though. No, I love Knight Rider, but. <laughs> I don't know that uh, I don't know that Kit has uh, I don't know that Kit is outfitted with a uh, with a circulatory system, much like the alien spaceship is here. So we're we're, we're nearing the uh, the climactic ending here, um, and we should probably, I guess, talk a little bit about 
well, one, just the scope of this, like the amount of extras they have. This is where the budget really shows. Stop um, the, the steal. Stop sort of... the steal. Yeah, Sorry. right. Um, and I do really dig, you, you kind of touched on this earlier, um, but I like the reasoning they sort of give for uh, Roni to not, you know, like like Quatermass and Barbara are both afflicted by the the pull of the uh, alien force, the possession, and that Roni is sort of immune to it. I think that's a really interesting idea. Well, and the idea that you know, much like the uh, the <laughs> the Martians, as it were, you know, they had their own mutations, right? Uh, that they felt the need to purge. You know, that's that must be on some level kind of what's happening here. Roni is simply different, and that's what all of these. And they even set up the idea that that's what a lot of the rioters are doing, right? They're finding people who are different, who are other, mm-hmm. uh, and they're you know they're they're purging them. Uh, and I love that. Out of the two of them, you would expect the one to be different would be the man whose name is above the title, right? You would expect yep. it to be Quatermass to be the special one, but it's not. Yep. He's the same as everybody else, pretty much. It takes Roni, you know, to be the man who's different, to actually, you know, reason with him and bring him out of it. And I love that he does it, not by smacking him around, not by punching him, not by killing him, but he just thinks and talks and reasons and well, brings him out of his madness. And I think... To your point earlier, that might be why it's better to have a quater mass that's more prone to anger and intensity, because that's sort of suggestive of that initial sort of alien insect brain, right? Like that they're more prone to that and that Roni's different because of the deep empathy he feels for people, the kindness. He's he's more fatherly. He's more, uh, you know, kind hearted. And it, it makes sense that he is therefore different than the average person in that way, um, that more that less people are inclined to do those sorts of things. But the people who who do are should be the ones that we look to to set trends, to make changes, to to sort of follow in their footsteps and try to emulate that behavior, because that's what's ultimately going to save us. Um, he's sort of the evolved man. And the irony to that is that he's the one who has to die. <laughs> yeah, you know. exactly. We we have to sacrifice the one who is uh, who's better. Yeah, who could make us better? Yeah, yeah, right. Like he who could lead us out of the darkness. He cannot survive this. Um, there's you know, but and and yet it's still tied into these archaic things like like iron and water as elements to fight evil. You know, that's that's such a old school thing, and those are things that come from humanity's own mythologies. And 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 we've imbued those things with power, and that's why they work. That's such a cool idea, right? Like like it only works because of our shared history. No, I agree. And plus, I'm just I'm, you know, it's obvious that model work is going on here. It's obvious that some heavy foam is standing in in place of uh, you know falling buildings and rocks and whatnot and debris. But at the same time, just the the scale of it and the beauty oh, yeah. in which it's shot. Like it just, it's one hell of a sequence. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I mean, there's, there's so many great moments and it's interesting too, when you compare it and I have, I, I keep bringing it back to the TV version, but I read a lot about it. This is such a cooler thing. Cause in the TV version, they didn't have the budget for any of this. So basically, you know, here we're dealing with a giant crane, which is such a cool set piece. I love the crane. It kind of reminds me of like Monster House, you know, 
the animated thing, you know, where at the end they have the, oh, the yeah. train. Um, I almost wonder if that's a bit of an homage to this. Um, but uh, uh, in the in the I, show, I would almost think it is, given that you know it was Gil Keenan who did it. He's obviously he wears his horror inspirations on his sleeve. I can't imagine he hasn't seen Quatermass in the pit. Yeah, yeah, I I I think it probably was. Um, but in the show, it's basically he takes a, a, a iron chain and just throws it down a hole, and that's it. Like they didn't have the budget to do anything beyond that, so it's like much less impressive and a lot more anticlimactic. So it's cool to see sort of how they're able to realize this in the movie. Yeah, and plus, you know, it's very it being a film that needed to be a big set piece, like it needed to be a huge moment. But at the same time, it's what the character deserves, you know. Yeah. Just uh, yeah. But it's funny, you know, going back to what you were talking about earlier about Andre Morel potentially being, you know, uh, like his quater mess in this film. Like I agree with you on everything that you've said, but also just here is genuinely frightening when he is overtaken there. Right. And I don't know that Morel's version of quater mess would have been. And as a result, you know, that scene wouldn't have been intense, but also what would the point be of having Roni, but also a version of quater mess that is fatherly. And is yeah, I don't know, know. and that's one of the reasons I want to see it. You know, is like I'm curious how that plays because it does sound less interesting. Yeah, like no variety there, no conflict. Presumably, it's uh, not that there's much in the way of what you would call conflict anyway, but at least there is a. I appreciate the fact that the men are so markedly different, and yet they are able to work together. And I don't know that that would have come across if you had Morel in this role. Yeah. Um, I do like that Barbara Shelley's like wearing red in this scene. It's like the only splash of red and it's so striking. Um, and then you also get him having to sort of restrain her in a way that sort of calls to mind his interaction with her in, uh, Dracula Prince of Darkness when he's staking her. Ah, uh, yeah. Look at the fire, Paul. Like, look, oh, yeah, you know, I got to imagine that listeners at this point probably think that I'm some sort of pyro, but I'm you not. You do love fire. You bring up fire every Hammer movie. Well, it's simply <laughs> because, you know, I, I miss it's not simply the fire, although I do love it. Uh, it's not simply the fire, but it's just the idea that back then you could just do that and create that and shoot that and it would draw you in even more and there's the idea of like a spectacle that you can buy into now and sadly even though it's a relatively simple thing to do the only thing that you lose is time and admittedly time is money sure but i hate the fact that it's rare these days you know it just it it bums me out you know we need to write a screenplay that features a scene that's like has a lot of fire in it and then insists that they use real fire. Just a roaring, raging fire. (laughs) We need like a, like a, you know, like a classic, like fight in a burning down house scene in one of our, in something we write. That's important. We need to make, I do think it is maybe I understand that the story bears this out. I get it, but it is maybe a tad unfortunate that Barbara Judd, uh, who's a character who was marvelously portrayed, uh, not really, not at all sexualized in the film. They gave her agency. She's a fascinating character. 
And, um, you know, one of her very last moments is uh, our male hero knocking her cold. You know, it's just, it's, I get it. I understand it. It's It's just something I don't love. Yeah. I do love this final moment, his his look. That look, I mean, this is the hero's moment. This is Mm -hmm. him. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's love and compassion for humanity you know, taking on something that couldn't possibly understand that. What I love that that's played in his face. Like he, you know, there is a, I think a lesser actor would have played it with his chin in the air or with a sneer or, mm-hmm. you know, have been, who've tried to be much more bad. Or a, a one-liner. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but instead, no, it's, there is almost a piece there yeah. on his face. And I, I think that's, I think he played it beautifully. I agree. I agree. I, I I love that moment. Um, and I really like this sort of brief denouement of Quatermass just kind of walking away, rejoining Barbara and leaning and then just kind of taking it all in. It's sort and- of a quiet, somber way of bringing us into the credits. It, uh, it's, it's, striking and emotional and it's a relief but also it's not a relief because so many of the ideologies of their world have have now been just completely disrupted well now they see their i mean to me this is uh this moment that and i love that baker never fades out in fact he actually loops this footage at one point so that it restarts you know the two of them sort of sitting there and staring all sort of dejected like, you know, but to me, like I watching these two people here, this is 2021 in a nutshell to me, these two people <laughs> sitting there hollowed out wrestling with the knowledge that they now share an earth with a number of people who, you know, mean so many others harm or, you know, uh, yeah, or and, th- and maybe have to wrestle with the fact that there's maybe something bad in them, you know, that they have to sort of, uh, you know, consider and uh, well, reconcile. Yeah, the, right. That their their very identities are are wrapped up in that they are them. Like you know, we are the the, the whole concept of these great movies and and this movie. This is right on the cusp of these types of movies taking over. I mean, you know, to its great detriment, one of the things that really hurt this movie in the U.S. was it came out right before um, two thousand one. And then 2001 just completely became the cultural phenomenon that it was. And then we had like Rosemary's baby and you know, it's which this movie is different than Rosemary's baby, but it's still dealing with sort of that demonic element that, that resides within us that we're all capable of sort of seeking out. And I think there's vibes that, that this shares with a movie like that. It's sort of that intellectual science fiction slash horror that kind of questions our very selves and our what's kind of lying beneath the surface of humanity. What am I capable of? And the villain is me. You know, I, I, 
I kind of love that. You know, it's funny. I'm watching, uh, or rather, I just watched the Scream Factory Blu-ray, and now it's gone back to the main menu. And there it is, man. You have this beautifully painted quad poster making up the menu. And what do we see off to the right, Paul? But a uh, cleavage-bearing young woman oh, yeah. screaming. And it's like, that's that's that was Hammer's marketing back in the day. That's what they were selling. Well, it's like, what, like that, nothing even remotely resembling that ever occurs in the film nope nothing there's not and even everything a woman, else does there's not even a woman in the movie that looks like that that doesn't look like barbara shelley let's go through the entire quad poster obviously the title okay so you have this wonderful montage where to the left you have uh roni helping quatermass uh you know, away from the rubble, you have the uh, the demon-headed alien in the back, you know, uh, Mantis Satan. Uh, you have the crane, you have the city skyline, you have Quatermass again. And then you have this lovely lady who has nothing to do with the movie that we've just seen. And she's easily the most prominent image on the poster. She's the biggest image. She's the first image that you sort of see. She's the only image that's fully... Uh, in color because all the other images are sort of one flat color you know like Roni and Quatermass in the corner are are sort of like this maroon color so is the devil then there's uh, his face all in blue and then she's actually like wearing a red dress and fully you know flesh colored so she stands out a little bit more uh, towering over every other image so again, speaking to sort of what we were talking about before with the advertising, it's just not representative of what the movie is. I mean, the other images are. <laughs> and then it's a shame that Barbara Shelley doesn't get to be featured on the poster. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, in play- and that's it. You know, they, they've erased Barbara Shelley from the marketing, you know, uh, and in her place, they have um, they've given us very large breasts. Um, and it's just it's. <laughs> I get it. I understand that they were trying to sell the movie, but at the same time, it's like, guys, just come on. Yeah. Well, overall, uh, a great movie. Again, probably one of our most on-point commentaries. I mean, I don't think we deviated almost at all. Uh, no, even even the deviations had something to do with... Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's It's just a testament to how good this movie is. It's a testament to not drinking in my oh, case. Well, I was allowing drinking. me to. I, I'm starting to feel sort of like a like a lush because <laughs> like I, we have these conversations and now I'm the only one that drinks and I feel bad about it. I feel bad about myself. No, play, no, it's got to be one of us, man. And it's, it's <laughs> I am. I'm two months sober and feeling great about it. So uh, no, it's I'm, awesome. man. no, I think that's great. <laughs> I'm, I'm happy for you. I really am. Um, so, you know, I was just self-deprecating. It's, it's what I do. Uh, and I, 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 I will get to a point, I think, when I can uh, comfortably enjoy a, a glass of gin or something someday. But for now, you know, I'm 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 content to be the Hammer Pubs teetotaler. No, nope, I am. I am good with that. And I think it's awesome. I think it's good for you. So Quatermass in the Pit, I think, is one of the great Hammer horror films. Top 10 easily, if not even higher than that. It is. Uh, it's just it's one of the best. And now. You know, teenage me understands why this movie was constantly in the mix, always in the conversation when it came to the very top tier hammer that was always put out there in front. You know, um, 
it's just it's it's one of the very best and it's crazy to think that forget trying to revive hammer for the modern day i'm just talking about like you know title recognition it's kind of amazing to me that there's never really been a revisit to this franchise aside from again back in 2007 the bbc you know live action serial and i'm you know would this character carry a theatrical franchise here in the states when the states never had a movie bearing his name i mean all three quatermass movies that hammer put out were retitled here in the states mm-hmm. when they came out you know which is just crazy yeah but even still like even you know it, it surprises me that nobody in the uk has kind of picked up that slack and tried to give us another quatermass uh adventure you know that's that's amazing hell even nigel neal apparently had an idea for a quatermass prequel called uh Quatermass and the Third Reich, which would have been set during the 36 Olympics in Berlin, um, never came to pass, but presumably that idea is still lingering there. He wrote a treatment for it, one imagines. So you could almost do a Quatermass prequel series, catching up with that character and kind of picking up the slack where Indiana Jones has dropped it for a decade at a time. And, uh, you know, just do that franchise. Why not? But, uh, Instead, you know, he's he's currently still sort of relegated to uh, the odd Blu-ray release and, you know, a few serials that haven't gotten enough love. And, um, you know, it's kind of a shame because, again, I think he's a, a sort of thinking man's hero and I think movies need more of those. Yeah, I I agree. I think it's... It's one of the great science fiction films. It's one of the great Hammer films. Um, Quatermass is one of the great characters um, in those movies. And I wish, you know, earlier you mentioned Quatermass movies have some things in common with James Bond films where there's like this weird sort of non-continuity to them, you know, where you can kind of watch each one as its own thing and yet know who that character is and what his history is. Um, and I kind of wish we had 20 Quatermass movies, you know, I kind of wish I had seen him sort of deal with all kinds of different weird science fiction situations and organizations. Like I wish I would love to see Quatermass versus some sort of like specter like organization, (laughs) um, that was, you know, I I don't know what they would be doing, but you know, working counteractively against whatever he was trying to do. Uh, that would be pretty fun. So, like, I, I do wish that that was a thing, and I and I think it, it could be a viable franchise. Um, but I will say, like, a, a surprising amount of people don't know who Quatermass is, you know, especially in in the U.S. Like, I I mean, I'll I'll admit I had no idea who the character was until I started getting into Hammer, and the people I've talked to, just friends and acquaintances, when I tell them what I'm watching, they're always, when I mention Quatermass, they're like, what's that? And I'm like, Oh, it's, it's a franchise. It's a you know big character in the UK. And they're like, ah, oh, that's weird. I've never heard of it. You know, they've heard of Dr. Who they've heard all these different characters. It's really a shame that Quatermass, which in many ways is sort of the progenitor of a lot of that stuff. Isn't as recognized as, as he should be. Yeah. And I do think, you know, I, I wonder where Doctor Who popularity is currently. I, I I think we might be a little past its uh its peak with New Who. I think the Tenet Smith era was sort of like uh when New Who was at its zenith. But I think that somebody dropped the ball by not reviving Quatermass at that point. You know, like yeah. that that was the time 
to do a big, you know, theatrical Quatermass movie. I mean, hell, there were, I think the guy who directed the last handful of Harry Potter movies had uh, lobbied Warner Brothers to get the rights so that he could make a Doctor Who film. And Stephen Moffat at the time, who was show running Doctor Who, uh, put his foot down with the BBC and said that there would be no film while the show was still on air, basically, right? And so it didn't happen. Uh, but, you know, by God, that's when somebody steps in and says, why don't we do Quatermass? Why don't we wrestle with all of these themes and, you know, uh, tackle that genre with another beloved yet maybe bit more obscure character? Um, and still, you know, I feel that way now. It, it's It's... And yet I know yeah. the reason is, is that there is by and large no value to that IP when it comes to the U.S. Because nobody knows the name. Nobody, yeah. Everybody knows James Bond. Uh, enough people know Doctor Who to at least, you know, you could probably open a Doctor Who movie like in the U.S. And enough people would recognize the name to at least maybe give it a shot if nothing else is playing at the multiplex, even if they're completely uninitiated when it comes to the show. Quatermass? Nothing but crickets, man. Um, I'm certain of that. So so yeah. I think, you know, I think the only way to kickstart a franchise like that would be to do the um well, how would you do this? How can I explain this? Do the fucking Star Wars thing. Do a movie where uh, uh, just na- well, for lack of a better title, and there must be a better title out there. But let's say five million years to Earth, right? Let that be your first movie. Get people familiar with the character, and then throw his name up in the second installment and the third installment, and then you can backtrack and rename the. Uh, well, I guess it would be more Indiana Jones at that point, right? Like. Raiders of the Lost Ark used to be just Raiders of the Lost Ark, but now, you know, with certain releases of it, it's considered to be Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, I think you could do the same thing with Quatermass, as long as you knock that out of the fucking park with the first installment. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I it it would it could be done. I think it would it would take a lot of the right sort of advertising and effort, but like if you got enough behind it i think you could make it a big deal and you cast it correctly that's the other thing you would need a star like you would need an a-lister but you would need the right a-lister you need an a-lister you need a budget you need an advertising campaign and it would do well i mean you know you could put i mean they've they're at the point now where if you slap mcu on the front of it anything will make money so just make it an mcu movie (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or just, you know, or bring somebody in from the MCU for quality control. Because yeah, I got to say, go. like, even at their worst, I, you know, they make a damn competently made movie. I, I have yet to see an MCU flick that I would call trash. Did that you I would see call Thor, just though? Bad. <laughs> I, I like the first Thor. I love Brahma's mm-hmm. Thor, man. I, I love that first installment. I really do. Uh, cool. The Dark World is... The, the worst that's a fact yes i just feel like thor and this is the part of the podcast where i kind of like i've had three beers so i just feel like thor feels like a movie that was made for the sci-fi channel and it was done in that way where it's like they just made three half hour episodes of a tv show and just like stitch like the family guy movie where like every 30 minutes like the plot's resolved and then they start a new plot that's how i feel about brown as thor I 
don't <laughs> see that at all, but I'm not going to talk about Brana's store at length. Um, sorry. No, it's fine. Uh, but if for no other reason than because I haven't seen it in years and probably no. couldn't properly defend it. Uh, it, I just, it I literally, well, all it. I'll say is that every half hour, a new plot starts that it's like, Oh, I lost my hammer. I got to find it. Oh, I found my hammer. Now I'm, now I'm on earth and I don't know what's going on. Oh, there's this, I have to get used to earth. Oh, now there's this monster thing and I got to beat it. Oh, I beat the monster. Like, it's just, it's, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Paul, Paul, you should never read comics, the serialized I nature just, of them. They I would, they would, like you would not be a fan. I just don't like it. Anyway, it's cool. Uh, but no, with the uh, Quatermass, Quatermass, I think there is a case to be made that you could, carry that character on in some fashion and i really wish they would so but if they don't at least we have what we have and i will say you know i've i've taken a couple of pot shots you know, lovingly at brian dunlevy <laughs> and uh the quatermass experiment and quatermass 2 but i do think both of those movies are actually quite good um but you know as good as they are and they are quatermass in the pit is again just a masterpiece it's arguably the best movie that roy ward baker has made uh, at least for Hammer, uh, I'll need to see a night to remember. But um, yeah, my I, I would definitely. Oh, sorry. No, you're good. I'm just gonna say, like, is whenever we wrap all of this up and we do our uh, our final lists, I would be very surprised if Quatermass doesn't make it pretty high up said list. I would agree. Yeah, I mean, it's one of my favorite Hammer movies. Um, it definitely ranks very highly for me with Roy Ward Baker. Um, I would put a night to remember. I, that's my favorite movie he's made by far. Um, after that, it would probably be Asylum, and then I'd probably put this. Wow. And honestly, I I know I, I look. This is probably a better movie than Asylum, but I just love Asylum. I can't, that's fair. I can't escape it. It's just like a personal thing. But the, this is this is by all accounts a more intellectual and interesting movie. But Asylum just hits all the sweet spots for me. I'm a I'm 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 kind of a sucker for anthologies. So the same here and Amicus, Amicus did an anthologies right, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. Especially that's by what, that's what getting they guys did like well. Lord Baker. So yeah, for sure. All right, I think we have reached the end of another Hammer Pub. Listeners out there, thank you so much, uh, Paul. Before we go, where can folks find you at online? Uh, you can find find me rambling about movies and stuff on Twitter at Paul is great two thousand. All right, and thanks for co-hosting, man. And thanks to all you listeners out there. As always, please make certain to like, subscribe, share, use the comment section below. Scream at us on Facebook and Twitter. That's at Scream Addicts, and I'm at Jinx1981. Until next time, folks, thanks so much, and have a great weekend.